Welcome to the 100th episode of Paper Team, live at the Greenway Court Theater in LA! In case, in case you still do not know, Paper Team is a podcast about television writing and becoming a TV writer. I'm Alex Friedman, aka TV Calling. And I'm Nick Watson on Twitter at underscore NJ Watson. And tonight, to celebrate the 100th episode, we have not one, but two back to back panels. Yeah, the idea behind tonight was to assemble writers across a range of levels, from staff writers all the way up to showrunners, to get a sense of what it's like to navigate a career as a writer every step of the way, and how that intersects you know, with their day-to-day jobs in the writer's room. And to start us off, we have an amazing panel about TV, comedies, and half-hour shows, so please welcome our guests. <laughs> Welcome. How are you guys doing? Good. Yeah. So to start things off, please introduce yourself with your name, the shows you've worked on, as well as your favorite flavor of ice cream. It's me. Can you, is that good? All right. Um, I am Nina Bargell. I have worked on um, live action and animated shows. Right now, I'm actually in development um, on a couple of things, one with Activision Blizzard and one with, um, I'm doing an animated show for Vin Diesel's company. And it's not the Fast and Furious uh, show, sadly. Very sad. Um, but I got my career started uh, on Lizzie McGuire. I wrote the bra episode. That's probably my biggest claim to fame. Um, I have worked on everything from DC Superhero Girls to Barbie to The Grim Adventures of Billy and Mandy. And my favorite ice cream flavor is mint chocolate chip. My name is Lauren Bradley. Uh, I am writing on Spirit Writing Free for DreamWorks. And um, I'm also in development at DreamWorks. And my favorite flavor of ice cream is Jenny's Brambleberry Crisp, specifically. <laughs> uh, specificity is important when it comes to ice cream. I think we can all agree. Uh, my name is Allison Taffel. I've written on the last two seasons of BoJack Horseman on Netflix, and ah, yeah, thank you. And um, hope I get a bigger applause for the ice cream I like. Um, which my favorite ice cream is cinnamon. I like cinnamon ice cream. Oh my god! Thank you so much. That means so much to me. Hi, my name is Vicky Liu. Um, I've written on Marry Me, The Grinder, and I'm currently on Superstore. My favorite ice cream is not as interesting. It's just Rocky Road. Hi, my name is Adam Stein. I'm currently writing on Harley Quinn, which is going to be an animated comedy on DC streaming service that's coming sometime this year or 2019, uh, whenever they decide to release it. Uh, I've worked on some other shows, Final Space, Ugly Americans, Kevin from Work, um, and Chocolate Chip. Uh, my name is Brittany Nichols. I wrote for a show called The Experiment that was on BET. That was a variety show. I wrote for the celebrity rap battle show, Drop the Mic. Uh, <laughs> I wrote for Take My Wife. And recently I worked on a show called Strangers that's on Facebook. My favorite ice cream is cookies and cream. <laughs> Awesome. So, uh, starting with Brittany again, we'll make our way down the line. Just briefly, how did you get your first job in a writer's room? My first job 
writing was actually for Billy on the street and there wasn't a room. It was just everyone wrote at home. Um, and I got that via a very nerve wracking uh, meeting at Funny or Die in which I sat across from the VP who watched my web series while I was in the room. <laughs> and then the first time she left, she stopped it. She said, ha, you're funny. And then, <laughs> and then I got to submit a packet and got the job that way. <laughs> I was uh, an assistant at Three Arts Entertainment, which is a management production company that uh, does Always Sunny in Philadelphia. And I very naively wrote an Always Sunny spec, which you're not supposed to do if you're trying to get on that show because for legal reasons, you usually can't even read it. But it ended up getting to the guys and they hired me to be the writer assistant um, and wrote an episode in the room there. And it was amazing. It was cool. Uh, first writer. I was uh, an assistant, executive assistant to... Um, one of the creators of America's favorite show, Dads. Um, <laughs> and um, we wanted to, um, I have a writing partner, and she and I were like, oh, let's write a, a script together, maybe we can get a freelance script. You know, like, usually with like, I think at the time they had 22 episodes, they usually give out a freelance script. We'll write one together, less competition. So we ended up writing a script together, Dads got canceled, no freelance script. <laughs> Um, but we ended up um, having a writing sample. We gave it to our bosses, and they're actually they're very really nice guys, really great guys. And then they pass it along to their agents um, at UTA, and it kind of snowballed from there. Like Dad's got canceled right when it was sort of like meeting season, so they just like pushed us out, and we just like went on a ton of meetings right away and landed our first job at Marry Me. Um, I, I was working at the Disney Channel as a writer's assistant. And um, that year I, I got representation and I feel like I'm one of those lucky people that I told my reps I really like BoJack Horseman. And then they got me an interview at BoJack Horseman. <laughs> um, that's how it works. <laughs> no, I think it was one of those kind of moments in the sky where it was like they just so happened to be looking for young writers and I happened to have a sample that was like perfect for it. And I was able to get an interview and, and then they hired me. And that's all I'll achieve in my life. Uh, I was a development assistant at DreamWorks. And I had heard that there was a script coordinator position opening up at on Spirit. And so I went to the development executive on the show, said, I'd like to be considered. She said, great, send me your sample. I lied and said I had one. Uh, went home, wrote a sample. And it was good enough to get me a meeting in which the executive talked a lot about a very specific book. So I went home and I read it and then like dropped in to like make sure she knew I read it. And it turns out that was that sealed the deal for me. And I was a script coordinator until uh, they hired me on as a writer. Um, mine is not as exciting. Um, I basically was... Actually, it's slightly exciting. So when I moved out here, I found a, I was living in Santa Barbara, and I found a stray dog, and I took it to the animal shelter and started to cry, because the shelter is sad. See, everybody's interested in dogs. <laughs> and the woman who ran the volunteer program um, met me and was like, oh, you're a sucker. You should volunteer here. And I was like, no, I'm going to move to LA, and I'm going to be a writer. And she went, oh, my daughter's a TV writer. You should meet her. And so I did. And then I was her assistant for three to four years, and then she got the job running Lizzie McGuire, and I got my first job on Lizzie McGuire, so always pick up stray dogs. <laughs> 
what advice do you have for other writers on getting staffed, whether we're talking about the shorter meeting or getting samples ready? Any kind of advice? If you want to be a writer, write something. Um, I don't mean that trying to be a snot. I mean, like, I've met many people who say they want to be a writer, and I go, cool, send me your sample. And then they're like, well, I'm working on it. I haven't finished it. It's scary to finish something. It's it's the most terrifying thing in the world. Fin- finish it, though. Like, just just start something and finish it and have a sample, and then your next sample will be better than your first sample. Just finish your writing and write something and write every single day. That, that would be my advice. Uh, to tack onto that, it doesn't have to be perfect. My first sample was not good, but it was good enough, and that's what you need. Uh, and then my second piece of advice would be, and it might come off as a little bit shrewd, but people like talking about themselves. If you're in a meeting with somebody, ask them about them. Don't try and make them like you. Like, you like them. That's that's going to be... A lot, they're going to leave that meeting and feel like you guys had a great conversation. <laughs> even if they mostly talked about themselves. And tell them you like the show, that you're meeting on a show. Like, say, you love this, you love this, because they want to hear that. So the other thing about taking meetings, which I think, um, no one, I don't know about y'all, but my agent did not tell me how to take a meeting when when I went on my first meeting. I was like, I have no idea what I'm doing. And um, I was just kind of a hot mess. And so have a story and have a couple of stories. Because they really, you know, while you should like them, they also need to know who you are and what you're, they talk about, like, what's your voice? So you should be able to get that across in a meeting. And if you need to practice, go out with friends and pretend that you're on, like, a non-sexual date and and sort of give your spiel. Um, But I also want to tack on to the idea of working on your spec and your samples. The other thing is if someone is willing to read your samples and they're willing to give you notes take those notes and address them. Because I cannot tell you how many times I'm like, I am here, I will give you notes. And all of those people are like, but can't you just give it to your agent? And I'm like, if I, I probably have read 40 scripts and no one has ever come back with notes. They've, no one has ever come back having rewritten with the notes that I gave them. So I just don't read anymore, sorry. <laughs> uh, I would say like in terms of working on your spec and sample, like um, I would say in terms of comedy, Definitely what I've noticed a little bit is like sometimes say, people save jokes or they're say they're like, like the first five pages you should have just like two to three jokes on every page. And like if you're going to write a comedy, it should just be immediately funny and you don't need to like spend a lot of time setting things up and like waiting. You're like, don't worry, it'll pay off. Like, cause you know, people are reading like hundreds of samples every day. So it really is just like should be right away your first five pages, tons of jokes. Yeah, she's right. <laughs> uh, I, I guess I would say that it's really tricky and i think there's so much of like you can tell from our story so much of it is like weird timing and i think the universe is trying to work in your favor weirdly enough um but part of that is putting yourself out there and part of that is knowing who you need to put yourself out there to so if you want to be in this business you should know who is in this business because it's like not a lot of help if you're putting yourself in the right place but then you don't know who to talk to because you don't know who the writers of your favorite show are you don't know who the people at the network you don't know the managers like just know the people that are in the circle that you want to be in so if you when you come across them you can make a connection i have one more thing operate as though no one is ever going to help you if you are constantly like doing your own stuff and you have stuff going on and 
you're out there kind of making things happen for yourself, those opportunities will show up a lot more frequently than if you are waiting for someone to take your hand and guide you to the job that you want. Um, because people like to hire people who are dependable and who can work on their own and who have their own stuff going. And it's just, it shows a lot more of your work ethic to have your own things going all the time than, than waiting for a writing job to come along. So how do each of you deal with the instability of this profession? Perhaps working one year and not the next, or a show being canceled, doing freelance work, that kind of thing. How do you each kind of navigate that? I'll start. Uh, I mean, I feel like I was always broke, so then coming here and being like, <laughs> you're going to have to be broke for a while didn't like hurt my soul the way that I think it hurts a lot of people's souls. Uh, and I think just once you sort of get on a roll and start getting jobs, you figure out how to pace yourself work-wise and monetarily and just like socially, like how to keep yourself afloat mentally. Um, but yeah, I think that just if you come in being like, I'm just going to be broke and that's okay because there's nothing wrong with being broke, even though our president and everyone else in the world will tell you that being poor is a crime. It's not. And it's fine. Uh, I'll say maybe the nice thing about writing is that when the job ends, the job actually doesn't end because you can keep go writing. And so if you, you know, the show ends, go to the coffee shop, sit in your room, whatever you do, and just write another script get a pitch ready and just always try to have something to go so yeah when the job ends you have something to move forward with yeah i would say just pace yourself i mean there's a lot of freelance work out there like there's a ton of like small writing jobs even between like network shows if you're in that like the network circle you know there's like all those award shows all those roasts like all those things those all need writers like any kind of award show so there is like a lot of work out there that can be found in between like gigs and also yeah so just pace yourself if you get your first writing job don't buy your house you know like just hold on you know like i've had writers be like i'm like going on i got a new car and i'm like what are you doing you don't know you know so you're like our first two our my first two shows like it was just a one season thing and so there's no guarantee and so you just never know especially with the landscape of television it is like it's sort of a miracle to be working on Superstore that has, that we're just like, this is a trick. This is a huge trick. Something's <laughs> going to happen, you know? So it really is just like pacing yourself and, and always writing, always, uh, cause the more you work, the more you're, you move up and at some point you are like developing and pitching. So it is always good to have like ideas for yourself. Um, and just if you want to write, it's just so your soul doesn't feel like lost and crushed. Um, it is good to just stay creative and work on projects like that, that aren't just like your job when you're writing. I'm just surprised no one's talked about um, curling up in the fetal position and crying all the time. <laughs> That's what I do. Um, I think the thing about this business and show business is uh, two things. One, it's really hard to explain to your mom, who's not from here, at least for me, and um, to explain, like, no, mom, I'm successful, but I just go on multiple job interviews a year. Like, that's really weird to say. Um, but also uh, just understanding that like kind of everything out here is temporary. Uh, every w one thing about being creative and being in this industry is everything ends. Everything. Even if it's like going on for 20 years, chances are by the time it hits your 20, it's not great and you should end it. Like it, everything comes to a halt. And I think mentally that's helpful for me because you can't feel like a failure when something ends. Just things end. And, and so then to piggyback off of what these three have already said, which is like continue being creative, continue understanding that like what you're doing is a creative process and you're lucky to be doing that. 
and trying to fill those gaps with that creativeness, but also having the mental capacity of understanding that like things end and that's just how it is. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I feel like that's ending morbidly, but like I actually feel like it's very positive in that like you're not weird that the job you had ended. Every, every job ends. That, that. <laughs> uh, yay. <laughs> so I haven't done this yet <laughs> I haven't actually been forced to confront uh, my writing job ending yet <laughs> but I can tell you what I'm prepping for because <laughs> I know it will end and I'm a morbid soul who lives in the world of this is always the end uh I'm spending all my free time writing my next 10 things. Um, I'm the kind of person who's neurotically coming up with stuff constantly. Uh, I can't turn that part of my brain off. So that's what I'm doing. I'm just working on that. And then when this is over, being like, here's what I got for you. <laughs> One of these, maybe? That's it. That's the only thing I know how to do. <laughs> that's good. I, I feel like we've been broken up with, though, with this everything must end, so someone should take that in their breakup speech. Um, so I've been writing professionally for 18 years, and I've been freelancing for 15 of those. So um, this is something that I know intimately. I My first job on Lizzie was a staff job. I wrote 17 episodes. I worked on a couple of other things. And then I was unemployed for two and a half years. And the writer's strike hit in the middle of that, um, and there was a lot going on, and my management was kind of a nightmare. And um, I went through a bad breakup, and it was just, it was ugly. And so I really just thought, well, I had a good run, and now I'm going to do something else. Um, a, save your money. Don't don't buy a house. 18 years, I, we, I just bought a house. Because you just never, and it's, by the way, it's still terrifying. Um, and by the way, and the fact that somebody gave my husband and I a mortgage is also terrifying. But, um, but they already gave it, so too bad. Um, so it, do work on all of these things, but the other thing that you have to be really cognizant of, and I'm sure everyone here would agree, and if not, you're wrong, um, is that, you know, you should have a good rapport with your agent or manager, and you should be talking about them of what's out there, what's being developed. A lot of now, um, it's about IP. So it's like, oh, we have this IP, come and give me a take. And it's kind of a pain in the ass, and a lot of the times you're not being paid for it, but just getting out in front of people and going, oh, this is my thought for this TV show that's based on this children's book, or this is my thought for this feature that's based on this, I work a lot in children's. Um, all of those will start ideally to either turn into work, or will you'll get yourself in front of a whole bunch of new people that can potentially hire you, and then get to the point, like right now, um, I wrapped a Cartoon Network show, but while I was on the Cartoon Network show, I was developing four different things that I was being paid for because I've just been doing this long enough. So it's, that's just sort of got to be part of your your every day. Like it's not just I'm working on this show. It's I'm working on this show and 17 other things. So let's say you just got staffed. Uh, yay. How do you navigate that first day or maybe first week in the writer's room? Uh, and hopefully the writer's room has windows and all that fancy things. I'll start this one. I just got staffed. Uh, I got staffed. Thank you. <laughs> uh, I just got staffed three months ago uh, on a show that I've been in the room for for two and a half years. 
so it wasn't brand new, but we did have an entirely new writing staff. I was the only one who was staying on, including our EP rolled off. We got a new head writer and all new writers, and it was just me. So uh, it was a little strange in that I was immediately looked to as, hey, do we do this on this show? What does this show sound like? What does this look like? And we were already on a tight schedule. So it was a little strange. But when you first get staffed, my best advice would be just be ready to run. Just go. Like, just start doing stuff. Trust yourself that you belong there because it gets really easy to find that part of you that has imposter syndrome and tells you that you're not qualified for this. If you're there, you're qualified. Just trust yourself. Do your job and continue to be a contributor in the way that is helpful and not hurtful to the room in a way that makes you part of a team and not an individual. Um, I'll do the advice that someone gave me, um, which is uh, uh, pitch once, don't repeat your pitch. If they don't like your pitch, how they don't like it is they say nothing. <laughs> so don't feel like, oh, maybe you didn't hear me, my brilliant idea. Um, yeah, they, they definitely hear you. Um, don't repeat your pitch. Uh, uh, trust that everyone in the room knows what they're doing. And so for me, when I got staffed, I was, uh, as common when you're staffed, I was the lowest writer in the room. And everyone is smarter and funnier than me. And I don't mean that. I'm hilarious. But I, I, I mean that they do know more and they're great and learn from them. And so for me, it was a lot of my job is to contribute to them, not beat them. Not, not, not beat their pitch, not beat their thing to assist them. Pitch once, don't pitch it again. Learn from them. Um, and also, yeah, going off of what you said of, of imposter syndrome, know that you deserve to be there. And so even when you don't have the solution to the problem, that doesn't mean you don't deserve to be there. It just means that there's other people who are smarter and more talented than you to figure it out. <laughs> and your job is just to pitch your pitches and don't repeat them. That'd be my, that'd be my advice. Uh, <laughs> that's good advice. <laughs> um, let's see, what can I say? Um, I would say similarly to that, never pitch problems without solutions. Like, um, don't like look at a story and be like, I don't think that works. And then like, just don't say anything. <laughs> Whereas like, it's very unhelpful. It's like, okay, like, and you know, and even the way you pitch a solution should never be like, I don't think that works, but this is better. It's, it's more of like, you know, you're just like contributing again. You're just like using that word of like, you know, another way that could happen is, you know, X, Y, Z. So it's just like the idea that you are there to, again, you are there to like sort of like help out. It sounds weird, but it's just like the idea that nothing, just because you're the new person and just because you, you're like the fresh eyes and stuff, even if you're, especially if you're coming onto a staff that's already established, that doesn't, that doesn't mean like all the pressure is on you to like impress everybody with like you coming in and like fixing the show. Like that's never like what they're looking for in a staff writer. Um, and it, I will say it, it doesn't get any easier to pitch. <laughs> um, you're always, I'm constantly in a flop sweat when I'm pitching. And so it is just as, but you just kind of like, it's a good understanding to know that everyone is like that. That, you know, it doesn't matter what level you are. Like every time you're pitching, it's like very nerve wracking because you're putting a lot of yourself out there because you're just hoping that when I end this sentence, there will be a laugh and not complete silence, which, and if there is, then you just like get up and walk out of the room. <laughs> Um, but there is, um, yeah, there's just like, there's a, a lot of pressure to be everything, but like some of our common sense things is like, don't be on your phone. <laughs> it sounds really silly, but these things are observed. Like, don't be on your phone and like, 
don't worry about just keeping pitches to yourself and thinking that like I'm gonna save this for like another time because there's never gonna be another time. If if you have an idea, then you should pitch it out. And don't worry about pitching like an entire episode in a go in like one sitting. Like you don't need to like think out every like episode while you're in a room. Like sometimes it is just pitching a joke. Sometimes it is just pitching like a moment or like a, a funny character or a funny line. So so there's like a lot of elements to it that. You don't need to like think that, okay, I got it. Like I got the whole thing like planned out. So yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of that is right on. And I, I love this phrase like pitch, don't bitch, you know, <laughs> don't just like shoot down ideas without yeah. something, you know, else to replace it. And yeah, when you are like, it's, it is yes. And, you know, try to, everyone's in this together, you know, you don't want to shoot anybody down, but, um, what was I going to say? Uh, oh, and then, yeah. And you know, as a staff writer, there is a seniority, there is a hierarchy in the room and like, you know, I know myself, I was super excited to be there. Do you have a lot of energy because it's your first job? But you got to like take a breather and like let some of the upper level people run the room and don't try to go up on the board and, you know, make your own show. You kind of got to just, you know, watch everybody's doing and, you know, be selective at first, especially the first few days of when to get your pitches in and when to speak. And, you know, eventually, well, everything will gel. I guess I will counter what everyone just said. <laughs> Uh, because I've been in smaller rooms with tighter schedules. Uh, so I was like in a room with six people. We were doing eight episodes in eight weeks. Then I was in a room of like seven people. We were doing 10 episodes in 10 weeks. And so there was not a hierarchy. Um, and we did have like a fair amount of people in both rooms who were coming in as lower level staff, right? Like staff writers or story editors. Um, and so we couldn't have that same. We're going to sit back and wait because then nothing would happen and we had so little time. Um, so I would say, like, be aware of what kind of room you're going into, because if you are in a small room like that, then you're just going to be useless and everyone's going to be pissy at you because you're not contributing. Um, and so I will say, if you are in that sort of situation, what I did um, was just try to find what my place is and sort of see what everyone's role is, because I think that people that have been in rooms before sort of know what they what their roles are, like... Some people are stronger joke people. Some people are stronger story people. Some people are just like problem solvers of we don't know where this is going. Oh, I am going to do that fucking weird thing where I pitch out the entire episode. And so just like finding, I mean, there are some, there are some beautiful minds in this industry. Um, and so I think just finding what your strength is and then just doing that as best you can. Um, I'm mostly freelance, so all of the rooms that I walk into, it's usually me, maybe another writer or a story editor, and um, an exec. So basically, every single time that I walk into a room, I am the new kid, and it's a little intimidating. I think at this point, I've just gotten used to it, so I would also say, do your homework. So when I walk into a room, it's like I always I'll look up the exec on Facebook or I'm like, well, who's the other writer? Or I, I watched every episode of the show that I'm going into where I've, you know, in DC Superhero Girls, it's like, oh, I'm going to study all of the characters. If they send you information, read it, um, reference it, because also sometimes you'll reference it and they're like, oh, we don't do that anymore. I'm like, oh, I just read this 70 page Bible and you're not. Okay. Um, and, and be able to, and this is something that you learn over time, but when you're in a room a lot, it's just being able to turn on a dime. You don't like that, moving on. It's sort of that sort of, um, you know, don't pitch twice. But sometimes I feel like people get so attached to the idea that it's like, it's sort of like finding a way to get it back in. It's like, no, no, no. Like, that's just not going to happen. 
let's move on. I was just say one more thing is um, use their lingo. That's also a way to sound like you're part of the room already <laughs> is if you just pick up on the lingo everyone else is using and do that. I did want to add that even though you're a staff writer, you do have a like fresh point of view. So you always have a unique and fresh point of view. So that's what you're bringing to the table. So um, like be willing to be a little bit vulnerable because that's like the power in your voice of like coming from something that not necessarily everyone in the room knows about. Um, I would say, especially if you're a writer of color, it's like, there's a reason we're trying to like integrate more of that where it is like, it's a new point of view, you know? So it is like, not that you need to like shut up at all, but it's just like, have like strength and have confidence in the fact that, you know, like I, I, I want to say something here because I, I think this is like inaccurate or I think this is like probably not the way to go. It's probably going to be really racist. You know, there's a lot of power in it. To like call stuff out in that way, in a way that's like, here's a joke that would make me sound less racist, you know. So it's uh, it's like problem solving within yourself, also in your pitching. Uh, so, what are some tips on breaking stories in a comedy writers' room? Lessons you've learned along the way from shows that you found really valuable. All right, I'll start. Um, longer isn't usually better. Like, if you're gonna wait seven hours, that's you know, at, at ten o'clock at night, your best ideas are not showing up. But you better be prepared to pitch at ten o'clock at night. So that's not really a tip. Just drink a lot of coffee. <laughs> in my experience, if you have two different story ideas that you haven't found a place for yet, and you try and Frankenstein them together, that usually doesn't work. Uh, sometimes it can, but it's usually really hard to make those things just like mesh together because you like those bits, and now you're trying to turn them into a story. Uh, my experience has been usually when I've been given an episode, there's already a general idea of what the episode needs to be. And I think I've always kind of interpreted it as like, this is a gift that's being given to me. Uh, I don't need to one-up it or prove anything of it other than take what has been given to me and and understand that my voice is important in this gift. So what's the personal thing I relate to with this story and how can I pers what's my personal viewpoint? I think that'd be my thought on that. <laughs> I would just say, you know, good ideas come from bad ideas. So often someone says something that wasn't great, but it will spur someone else to think of something great. So just, you know, don't be afraid to say an idea even if, you know, you don't think it's amazing because so often it just leads to something good. Yeah, um, the pitch that leads to the pitch. Yeah, yeah. And it assists, you know. <laughs> For the layup. That's a sports joke, you guys. <laughs> I know, sports. As far as breaking story, like a lot of focus before you get a job is on the structure of just like a singular script and you should pay attention to how seasons of television work and the flow that they have where the low po points are supposed to be where the high points are supposed to be and just seeing the bigger picture yeah i would say like for just from my experience in network we work in like for nbc we work like, like a four-act structure so it's kind of learning the logistics of that even just how it's insanely boring it really helps you when you are breaking a story where it is like you know at the end of every act there has to be like a comedic blow and just like from that you can kind of Sometimes you can't work backward. We're like, this is a really funny joke. We really want to make this joke work. And you sort of work backward to like get yourself there. It doesn't always work out. And sometimes you have to kill the joke. Um, but it, it is just like kind of learning just like how shows format. You know, there's a lot of like, like uh, a lot of cable stuff that doesn't have like necessarily like act structures that are like that clear, even though they, everyone works in some form of structure and just kind of learning what that is and like, figuring out how to write that because then it like gives you a direction and how to break story. So some of you already spoke to that, but can you 
dig a little bit deeper in terms of how the dynamic and the etiquette in the room influences the way you pitch and uh, sometimes contribute to the story. So for the first time ever, I'm in a room that's exclusively women right now. What? Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. It's, it's super rad. Um, and the reason I, I bring that up specifically is the vibe in the room could not be better. Uh, it, everyone feels very comfortable talking about whatever story points they want. No one ever feels like they're being shot down or competitive. Our old room wasn't necessarily like that all the time. Uh, it's wonderful. So I will say having a room that you jive with makes all the difference when it comes to, especially when you're a newer writer, feeling comfortable pitching ideas that you're not 100% sure are good, but might lead to something great. I I had an experience very early on where I had written a joke in the margins of a script and I wasn't going to pitch it because I thought it was a stupid joke. And one of our writers leaned over. Um, I had been at my script coordinating job maybe three, four weeks and said, that's funny. You should pitch it. Don't ever keep jokes like that again. And it made it into the show and it ended up actually being a recurring joke. Um, it's a dumb, dumb joke. Um, but it, it ended up in the show and never again did I hold on to a joke because I thought it was stupid because someone else might come up with something great. And that, I mean, the vibe of the room is super important for that. Uh, I would just say, you know, you're there to execute the showrunner's vision, uh, which doesn't mean be a yes man, but, uh, you know, it's their show and how can you best help them make the show they want. Uh, and so, yeah, don't be too precious with any of your stuff. You know, yeah, if it's not getting traction, let it go. Because, yeah, I feel like I just hear stories all the time of someone who stops the room constantly and is always the person who's got a problem with stuff. And there's a problem, you definitely want to point it out, but at some point you got to know when to just shut up. <laughs> yeah, and I, oh, it's also just like etiquette stuff. Like, yeah, keep your phone away, show up on time. The first few days, maybe if everyone eats lunch together, eat with them, just, you know. <laughs> It's like new school rules. Yeah. Like, the new kid. Um, I guess, I don't know, maybe I've been doing this longer, but I, I have um, some scary horror stories. So um, I was going to say have a good therapist and um, just cry with the office door closed. Um, but also, I, I think that for me personally, like when I would deal with some of the, the bullshit, um, it really, I'm not saying it's good, but it really did help me sort of develop not only like a thick skin, but like a comeback where I could like, I learned how to politely put older male showrunners um, in their place, but with a smile. And I have to say that while that was not a very um, happy experience, it has been one of the most useful traits in my entire career um, and on Twitter. Yeah, it's... It's a tricky question. I say that every room is different. I know it's like just a lame thing to say, but it is like a mixed bag of what you're going to experience. Like an all-female writing set. That sounds crazy to me. <laughs> yeah, I, you're lying. Um, but it is just like every, I mean, I've like, it, yeah, I've been in like very tough rooms where I'm like, I was like, oh, no one's laughing. Okay, I have to try harder. You know, like, and I've been in rooms where like everyone is like super nice and supportive of each other. And like, you know, so there is like every room depending on the, and that's what it is like you're getting different writers from various different personalities and you're really trying to see how they gel and some rooms are uh, meaner than other rooms um and some rooms are like really nice and pleasant and supportive of your dreams but it is just like <laughs> just so. 
Yeah, just some. Um, no, but it is like again, yeah. Even dealing with bullshit, it it it's it's a it sucks, but it also like you know it gives you a thicker skin. I guess is the lesson you have to take out of it, and also you're learning to navigate. Okay, even like taking lessons of like that's not that wasn't an environment that I thrived in, and that's what you take from it. Not like there's not necessarily the reason like okay, I'm gonna get my thicker skin and I'll just be an asshole like the rest of these people. You know, like that's not necessarily the lesson to take from it. It's just like okay, like I'm gonna get through this and know that this is not what like helps me be creative and this is not something that I'm loving at this moment. Um, so it's just taking it as you can and like really like learning your knowing yourself and not beating yourself up too much. If it feels like you're not gelling with the rest of the room, sometimes sometimes it's you, sometimes it's the room itself and just like the dynamic and not everybody's gonna get along. I also think that um, it's really useful in a good room and in a bad room to sort of see how things are run because ideally in this business you are basically prepping yourself to be a showrunner. So watch and listen and see how everybody is interacting because you want to think about what's the show that you want to run and sort of what is your room going to be like. To piggyback of what she was saying is uh, sometimes in bad rooms, there are people who are actively out there trying to make your life hard. And there are people who pick on other people because they can. Uh, If that happens to you, the best thing I have found is to kill them with kindness and to remember that you are here to do your job and you are here to make yourself look good and the room look good. And if they're out there trying to, I don't know, be a bully for whatever reason, it's not going to serve you well to stoop to any of their level or to uh, rise to that occasion. Just do your job and do it well and you will be fine. I'll say, I'll say, uh, that you're on a team when you're in a room. Um, and so sometimes people are going to have off days. Sometimes you're going to have off days. Uh, and if you're a writer, then you might be an introvert. And so <laughs> being in a room is like very intense socially. Like you are talking and listening intently and paying attention for six to 12 hours a day, depending on the room. And sometimes you just have to give yourself a break and say, I'm just going to like sit here and relax for three minutes and then I'll get back into it. But just being aware of where you are, even just throughout one work day. So let's say you've been assigned an episode on your show. Walk us through your process for getting that script done. Panic. <laughs> I, I get uh, in the writer's room I have been in, I get to go home with the script, which is helpful because then I don't have to put on pants. Which is one step I didn't have to do with my day. I usually break a day down into, so for instance, if I have a week to write a script, act one, day one, act two, day two, act three, day three, uh, fourth day, cry at how terrible your first three acts were. Um, But I think actually really, honest to God, uh, setting a schedule for yourself and and following it, even if what you feel like is just typing garbage on a page. I always say, like, if you are, if you feel like you're word vomiting or you're typing garbage on a page, at least it's on a page and you can work with that. You can work with garbage on a page way better than you can work with a blank page. So do it. It's scary. It sucks and you hate yourself, but like, that's the process. And so I think my, mine has always been to structure a day. And for some people, they can't write at home. So they go to a coffee shop or they go to do whatever. I, uh, I like being in my cave of a home. So I make my bed my office. And apologies to my fiance. Um, but that's what I do. Uh, but I think having uh, setting deadlines and meeting those goals regardless because you are fortunate enough to be getting paid to do that. So you have really no excuse to uh, 
to to hate yourself you can but like you have to do it and i think that's been my most helpful thing is like set the set the mark you have to hit and and then after you've hit your mark of your first draft rewrite 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 and all the while in the back of your head keep in mind that you your job at least first draft should not cannot be perfect it, you're going to turn it in and you're going to get a million notes and that's important to get and it's fair and it's also like it doesn't mean you're a failure. The fa- What would make you a failure is if you didn't have a script to turn into somebody. So I think those are the important things is just like setting those deadlines even if you hate them, even if it's painful. And just get through it and do it. And you'd actually be kind of surprised by your result. I would imagine everyone here is like, oh, actually, I can write. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> Isn't that fascinating that I, I can do this? Um, so that would be my, <laughs> that's my structural <laughs> advice. <Yeah. laughs> I think we could give you all the advice in the world. Um, like I could be like, yeah, drink coffee from nine to ten, <laughs> ten to eleven. Think about the concept of love. But like, you know what kind of writer you are, and so just prepare yourself to do whatever it is that you do. Like, like I said, I worked on two shows where we had really tight schedules and so we were given three days to write our scripts and i know that for the first two days i'm gonna fuck around and then i'm gonna write it on the third day like why (laughs) i know who i am as a person and so i say set yourself up for success and what i do is the third day i make sure i don't have shit to do (laughs) so just know who you are as a writer and uh prep for that uh and i'll you know for me uh, you know, I'll go through the outline and just try to brainstorm jokes before I start writing and just, you know, does everything make sense? Is everything clear? And then, you know, I've, if, if there's a scene that's hard, I'll put it towards the end and I'll just work on the fun scenes first and then go back. And, you know, I think it does help if you have time to finish the script, give yourself even maybe a day to not think about it and then try to look at it with like new fresh eyes. And maybe you'll see stuff you can miss the first time around. Yeah, how we work is, I mean, there's a lot that goes into even before you leave to go write this, the writer's draft yourself, where it's like you break a story together in a room and you kind of like, for us, we do like a beat sheet and then we do like a story and then we do an outline. So it's like by the time you get to the script version, you just really, really know at least the plot like to a T and kind of like have an idea of how it's going to break down. Um, and you have like pitches for jokes and stuff together in a room. So when you go off, it is like you're just working off that outline. And what I like to do is I do just my style is like I, I kind of do like a dump draft where I just I write all the dialogue as like clunky as possible to just get like what is the point of this scene. And it's like not not the funniest, but I'll even write like and then like joke here, you know, and then like funny response, you know, and like so it is just like stuff where you can kind of like plan out the scene itself to just know like the direction that's going in. But that's like the style that I work in where other people I know like okay, this line has to be perfect. Okay, the next line has to be perfect. So it really is like everyone's style is like a little bit different. Uh, always do a spit draft. And then uh, I I think it is knowing what kind of writer you are. It took me a little bit to figure out that I can't write at home, um, that I will just turn on FBI files and do that all day. So uh, instead, if you need to go someplace else, go to a coffee shop, find a podcast of something you're not really that interested in. Um have that Not paper play. team, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> I appreciate it. Thanks. I use paper team. Uh, <laughs> just something that you can like hear people talking in your head so you're not like eavesdropping on the people next to you at the coffee shop, but like that you're not really paying attention to. Um, and just 
give yourself office hours where you're like, I am here from 9 a.m. till 3 p.m. During that time, I need to get an act done. Once that act is done, I can go home or go on Facebook or do whatever. While you're doing that, give yourself a break to like go to the bathroom, do stuff. This is your office time. And then once you leave that office time, do not think about that script until your next office time. Because if you have the ability to take that time, your script will be better for giving yourself a mental break until tomorrow when you get your next act done. All right. I'm like Brittany. Um, so when we were, um, when I was on Lizzie, we, while I was a staff writer, there were, um, I was actually writing with my brother at the time. There were two of us. There was another team. There was another single writer. And that was our entire staff. So that's how I ended up writing 17 episodes of a uh, very two very long um, seasons and so we had to come up with our own ideas and pitch our own ideas and write our own outlines and then write our scripts and because it moved so quickly essentially I was going from idea to sitting down at the table in a month which is pretty pretty fast and what I learned how to do is write very 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 quickly and so I write something I, I call mine a fired first draft which means if anybody read it I would be fired <laughs> So when I am, if, if I am a site, if I'm working on something um, or even just in freelance, it's like, okay, you know, we're going to write a 70 minute movie. I do a lot of those. Like you've got two weeks. I'm like, great. First three days I drink. <laughs> I don't have to go to work. I'm like, I know there's money coming in because I've got this movie. <laughs> and then um, the fourth day I panic, but I don't start writing yet. And then on the fifth day, I'm like, okay, you know, I've got like, I think there are like five acts. So I think, okay, I'll, I'll write three acts. And I write two. Um, and then I drink. My husband's over there. He'll tell you. <laughs> and, um, and then I take another day or two because I need my rest time. And, but I'm panicking that entire time. So there are times where I, I, I did once write a 70-minute movie in a day and a half. Um, but... First of all, I do not recommend that. I've been doing this for a very long time, and it's, I, I mean, they've given me the money, so they can't take it back now. Um, thank you, Barbie, for paying for my house. But, um, but again, I think Brittany's right. Like, however you write is the right way. Like, I could never do office hours, nine to three. The idea of being in a coffee shop around people and I have to put on, like, my good bra is a nightmare. <laughs> Um, but I also like, I just, that whole, you know, that fired first draft, once I have that out, I actually print it out like an old person and I make notes on it and I start doing my rewrite there and then I get halfway through and then I throw it away and I just do it on the computer. Um, so I'm, I apologize to all of the trees, but, um, but whatever works for you, the one thing I will say is you just have to finish and turn it in. There is no turning it in late. There is no, my dog ate my homework. This is your job. You cannot wait for inspiration. You cannot wait for anything because guess what? Somebody else is here to take that job. So finish your script. To piggyback off that, just because it is a podcast, the moment she said, I printed it out and I write on it, a bunch of us nodded and said, yes. <laughs> Big fans of printing out and handwriting on things here. So that's a good, just revision note. Just wanted to just wanted to sprinkle that in, give some flavor to this podcast. <laughs> well, speaking, and now I'll hand it to you. Oh. <laughs> there you go. Why am I always holding mics? 
Well, speaking of revisions, uh, let's talk about joke and dialogue punch-ups. How do you gauge which joke works for the scene, and at what point do you sometimes sacrifice the funny for the story or the character? My rule of thumb is to always go character first. If the joke doesn't work for the character, then the joke doesn't work. Um, and if you love, love, love that joke, you put it in your back pocket and you f wait until there is a character that it works for. Um, at least that's how I work is I try and always think through character first in joke punch-ups. I'll go next and then we'll go back. For me, I also do character first, especially in, in kids' stuff. It just you They're very big on like character, character, character. The one downfall of not being in a room is I can't pitch the joke. Like my dog does not think I'm funny. So I don't have like, generally you're in a room, a bunch of people can laugh, but that's not always a great indicator because sometimes it's three o'clock in the morning and anything is funny, which is how a joke about string cheese once got into an episode of television. When I was a writer's assistant, I'm like, this isn't funny, but it's 3 a.m. and no one cares. <laughs> so um, the thing that I will, um, I will say, there, there are two things. One, say the joke because it's dialogue. And so while it may look good on the page, you need to be able to tell that joke. So I always read my scripts aloud. And the other thing that I do um, just to get better at joke telling is um, just tell jokes on Twitter and see what people react to. I mean, it's a pretty instant feedback loop. So I'm Slack mistress. <laughs> I really want everyone to like me. So I want everyone to think I'm funny all the time. So I, uh, my, my thing is always like, if the joke is funny, and I think it's really funny, I'm going to say it, <laughs> even if it doesn't fit. And also to know that like there's other people who have really funny jokes that may not go in, but if you think it's really funny, laugh really loud, and know that that's going to come back later, because writers love callbacks. Um, so I think that's always, <laughs> they do. I remember having jokes being like, you, you pitched that in episode two. It's episode 12. It's going in. Um, and that's like the joy. I, I don't know. I always, I, I have a joy for comedy. I love it so much. So like when it comes to punch ups or making them something better to me, it's not this like, oh my God, it's this, it's the best part. It really is. And it's, it's, it's so much fun to hear people funnier than you tell really funny jokes. And then you like, I, I feel like I've had so many jokes that I've been like, you guys, this is really bad. Hold on. Let me, go, let me tell it too. <laughs> and people have loved it. And it's gone in or I've said it and it's been like crickets. And I don't care. I'm just so proud that I said it. Um, but enjoy the fun and enjoy the play of it. I guess that's the point of my rant. But yeah, that'd be it. Backpacking off that, there's so much to be said for room jokes that literally go nowhere. But you guys had fun talking about it in the room. And it can sometimes lead to an even better joke that you guys never thought about. Or even a story point. Or even a C story that ends up in the show because you guys ended up joking about that joke. There's so much that spins off of punch-ups and joke pitches in a room just live in that moment and enjoy that in terms of when we know jokes don't work usually i, I have a couple bosses that will write in your script this isn't funny uh, <laughs> and that's when i know the joke didn't work um it's pretty clear uh they don't always write that they write nice things they write like alt and so you just like you just know so, yeah alt, yeah sometimes right this one's okay which is like really <laughs> I, really I, gets I did once have a boss say anything's better than what's on the page. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's some harsh notes out there. I know? once got an "Are you crazy?" Yeah. <laughs> um, <but laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, 
Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, you know, I work, um, in a room. So yeah, it is just like pitching a joke out loud. And if it gets a laugh, it goes, it usually is like the biggest, the joke that gets the biggest laugh, which like everyone's pitching. It's like different pitches. That's a laugh. That's a laugh. But like, usually there's one that gets like a little bit more or like works really well for the story. Um, you know, you get the, sometimes there's a, it's a little bit of both where it's like, it's a joke that both is just a joke in itself, but also hits the storyline. So like that is usually the one that goes into the script. Um, but yeah, it is just like, I mean, it's, I don't know, it's comedy. So it's really like everyone's like perception of what is really funny is, is going to be different. So it is, um, but in terms of what you find funny, it's just, it is like what everyone's saying where it's like, you should just say your jokes out loud read things out loud, read them to people. If they don't laugh, don't get mad at them that they didn't laugh. <laughs> I've done that to my wife. Uh, you don't get it. <laughs> it's really funny. <laughs> yeah. Whatever, you don't get it. So, but, you know, but I take it back, I was like, no, you're right, you know, you didn't laugh, it doesn't work. Um, so it is just, yeah, you have to be willing to just like, it's not, you're just never gonna bat like 100, you know, like you're, you're pitching so much that not everything's gonna land. Yeah, the showrunner is the arbiter on, you know, on what's going to stay in. And I think that's the greatest perk to, you know, be the showrunner is that you'll decide what's funny and what jokes gets to stay in. And like on the show I'm on right now, you know, we do a lot of rewriting on on the board in the room. And, you know, we'll just go through a script. And sometimes, you know, one of the bosses will just be like, eh, bold that joke. And then uh, and then later, you know, if they're off doing something else, the rest of the room will just pitch jokes on it. We'll have a bunch for him when he comes back and he'll pick one. And, you know, you hope it's yours. But <laughs> I've had a showrunner say to me once, no. <laughs> and then just leave it at that. <laughs> it's fair. It's fair. <laughs> All righty. Uh, last question for the panel as we are sadly running short of time. What do you wish you knew when you were first starting out that you know now? It could be advice. It could be a resource, a brand of vodka, whatever works for you. What I didn't know when I was first growing on generals is that they want to know about you and like the spiel that everyone was talking about uh, when you first start doing it does feel very uncomfortable. Um, but you just have to over talk and you have to find new ways to talk about yourself. Like you sort of have to be able to connect everything anyone says back to something you do or like, <laughs> uh, which is a skill. Uh, unto itself uh, and so I would say don't don't be shy don't be afraid of that and don't think it's going to make you look like an asshole because if they're meeting with you you've already done something that they like and they want to know more about you yeah I'd say on that too like in a showrunner meeting you know two things you're doing are they want to know if they're going to want to hang out with you for 10 hours maybe 15 hours in a room all day and so part of it is just like a vibe and in general you know do you guys get along uh, and then it also is, you know, what are you bringing to that show and what about you specifically and your stories and your writing and your voice can help them with this specific show. So I think just, you know, going in there with some sort of a game plan of what you want to say can help. If you know that they're bringing you in for one specific thing, like if like I've been brought on because I'm like young and hip, like look young and hip, like lean into <laughs> like come in with your finger, like lean into whatever it is they think that you are because if they already know what role they want you to play then you need to show them that you're willing and ready to play it i would say off of that i wish i had known how much anxiety i would have becoming a writer 
Um, no, but I mean, it really is like, it's, it sounds so stupid, but like self-care because you're spending like all this advice of like, you got to be likable, you know, you got to like get along with everyone. Like at the end of the day, that is so emotionally exhausting because you're just like, do people like me? Like that's all that's like, all of a sudden, that's all that is being a writer. And I was like, wish someone told me that. Like, I thought it was just about writing where it is. It is so at the end of the day, just like checking in with yourself and just being like, it's, it is still a job. And like, obviously you're not always going to get along with everybody, but being able to, you know, I guess like love yourself at the end of the day, even if you're having issues or anything like that, gelling with anyone else in the room. I think this world is full of rejection and it, it will, it will. I'm sorry. I'm trying. I want to spin it positive, uh, similar to my, similar to my beautiful everything ends soliloquy that I had earlier. Uh, well, but like, I think I would tell my younger self that there's like, oh man, there's many different forms of rejection. <laughs> And you will discover them all. <laughs> and yeah, there's nuance to them. There's some that are subtle. There's some that are like obvious. There's some, but it's that. <laughs> um, it's that they they all kind of even out of like that's part of this game. That's part of this journey. We're cr we're all crazy for being here. We all could. We're all intelligent enough to get some office job in Podunk nowhere and do nothing, but we really want to be here. <laughs> or some of us. Um, some of us work on Super Um No, but I, I just mean like I, we are crazy to be here, so it's okay that there's like so many levels of 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 rejection and things that are hard. And and if you can understand that and understand that like I, I'm just I'm sorry uh, to project, but I'm assuming all of us have been rejected up here in many different ways. And it's not so much, uh, we're all very talented, I'm sure, and we're all really funny, but it's how we can get through that rejection that has made us be able to be here. And I think that's the thing I would tell my younger self, is it's like, oh, this is really hard in, in, hard in ways that you don't even fathom yet because you're so young and dumb. <laughs> um, and, and to be okay with that because that's part of this journey. See, isn't that a positive Aww. twist on this? I tried. Uh, I'm still kind of new at this, so I will be in progress. We'll check back and see if these things are correct. But uh, one thing I wish I would have told myself when I started writing seriously is you don't have to go looking for your voice. You already have it. If you have any stories that you tell people that you don't think are funny because they're your life, but other people think they're funny, that's your voice. That's it. Um, for me, it's messed up family stories. If you have messed up family stories, use those. They are golden. They are the thing that will be your ticket to great meetings because no one will believe they're real, but they are. Um, and then my, my second thing is what has helped me a lot in generals and that kind of helps my anxiety a little bit is have like a thing that's like your thing. If you're the young hip person, be the young hip person. If you're the person who dresses really girly and in pink, dress really girly and in pink. If that's like your thing, be somebody that somebody remembers you by your thing and make it something that you chose because you don't want to be remembered by something that was out of your control. So make it something that you chose to be remembered by and make that your thing. I have blue hair. <laughs> That's my thing. I also, I also drive a pink car, but... Um, so I have, I have um, two pieces of advice. One is sort of um, 
I like to talk about rejection too. I have, I have a lot of failure. Don't, you need to move past the rejection. There are a lot of people that are like, if I had gotten that job, what that thing, if, if that exec hadn't left, I would have had, you know, if Disney had made Hillary Duff a better, a better offer, like I would have worked on Lisa McGuire on TGIF for, you know, 10 years and retired in Malibu. I mean, all of these things could have happened and you're going to have so many near misses. And if you get wrapped up in the near misses, you'll never sort of see what's in front of you. A sort of a side to that uh, advice adjacent is don't worry about other people's jobs and what they got because you cannot control that and that will kill you. Because if you're worried about, well, that person isn't really talented and they've got that job and how did that happen and all of that anger, listen, that shit's probably true, <laughs> but it'll just kill you. So don't, you just cannot get wrapped up in it. Take an hour, take a day, go have some bourbon, and then come back and do your work. Um, so the other real piece of advice is no one gives a shit about your career as much as you do. So you, I have an agent and I have a manager and they are great, but they don't give a shit about my career as much as I do. And that's the thing that um, when I was a, a baby writer on Lizzie McGuire, I wish I had known. I sort of paid attention and saw what was going on and, and all of that. But like, I just thought, oh, my agent will get me a job. My manager will get me a job. Not truly realizing that if they didn't get me a job, well, one of their other clients would get a job. So it's fine. So you always have to sort of caretake your own career, act like your own agent, act like your own manager, and you'll always be working. Do you have Please. a thing? Come in early with it. If you shift something mid-season, be prepared to be made fun of relentlessly. <laughs> you gotta just, you come in there day one. This is my thing. I'm just saying. Just <laughs> Sounds like personal experience. <laughs> All right, before we go, where can uh, folks find you online? Oh, um, I'm Slack Mistress on Twitter and Instagram and every other social media network known to man. I'm on Instagram at Lauren the Boring and Twitter at The Boring Lauren. <laughs> Switching it up. One wasn't available. My name's Allison Taffel, so I was real original, and my Twitter is at Allison Taffel. That's one L. One F, another one L. There's no doubles. Don't worry about doubles in that. And that's the same with Instagram. At Allison Tap. Um, I don't have Twitter. I know. I'm sorry. I had to get out. Congrats. Um, but I have an Instagram. It's I think it's just V Lou. V L U U. Super original. But my name is Vicky Lou. You can I guess find me on Facebook too. Uh, I'm at Steinimal. Uh, my last name's Stein. Uh, but it's mostly just tweets about Trump. So. <laughs> I'm at Be Is Hilarious on Twitter and Instagram, and you can find my indie feature at suicidekill.com. All right. Uh, we are going to be taking a short intermission for 15, 20 minutes. Uh, come back for the drama panel right after that. But uh, let's please give a big round of applause to our wonderful guests. <laughs> Welcome back to our second of two TV writing panels. This one is all about the uh, super serious one-hour drama. Please welcome our amazing guests. <laughs> Let's start things off. Uh, so please, can we go down the line? And if you guys can uh, introduce yourselves as well as the show you worked on and your favorite cocktail. <laughs> 
my name is Britta Lundin. Uh, I write on the show Riverdale on the CW. Uh, thank you. And um, my favorite cocktail is just like a bourbon with like one giant ice cube in it. <laughs> That's not a cocktail. My name is Monica Maser. Um, I most recently ran season two of Queen Sugar. And um, um, my favorite cocktail would be anything with soju in it. What's up, y'all? <laughs> I'm Hilliard Guess. Um, I am on the show, the Russo Brothers show, um, Deadly Class. Hot chocolate from Coffee Bean, because I don't drink. Hi, I am Chris Levinson. Um, I've written on everything from Dating Myself, Party of Five, to Law and Order. Um, and I currently have a couple of pilots in development, and cocktail of choice would be uh, just a shot of tequila. <laughs> Hi, I'm Allison Chapker. I'm currently running um, season two of Altered Carbon. And uh, uh, I'm a sucker for a mojito. Hi, I am Grania Godfrey. I'm a co-executive producer on DC's Legends of Tomorrow. <laughs> oh my God, people watch this show. I'm so happy. Um, I just love Prosecco so much. So... <laughs> Alrighty, so very briefly, how did you get your first job in a writer's room? My first job was on the first season of Lost. That's how I met Allison Chapker. And I was in the Fox Writers program, but still was up for Lost anyway. And I had this interview with David Fury and Damon Lindelof, who are huge fans of 24. And I was, at the time, the writer's assistant on season three of 24. And of my 30-minute meeting, we spoke about 24 for 20 minutes. <laughs> and I started freaking out, like, I'm not going to get this job. like this. And I kept trying to weave in things about how it would be good for the job, and they just kept circling back to, so tell us about Nina. And that when she, and I was like, I'm just never going to get this job. So never mind, let's just talk about 24. And eventually, at the last 10 minutes, um, Damon said, tell us about yourself. And so I... My manager said, don't pitch ideas for the show. Like, everyone's going to come in and pitch the same 10 crappy ideas. Like, there's no water on the island. Like, she said, don't do that. She said, pitch how you relate to the characters. So I, um, I'm half African American and half Korean American. And I said, you know, I relate, I talked about, uh, Walt, Michael's son, because he has a line in the pilot where he says, we moved around a lot. And I moved around a lot as a kid. I'm an army brat and a government brat. And I went to 13 different elementary schools and junior high schools. So I, I talked about that. And then I also just started telling stories about my family's escape from Northern Korea. I told a story about how my grandfather was hiding out in a cave with other men who were targeted by the communists. And then my grandfather left because he just missed his family and was like, went back home, got my grandmother and their six children, including my mom, who was four, and they escaped across the mountains of North Korea into South Korea, bribing co communist 
guards and soldiers, and they basically told the kids, we're, pl- pl- we're playing hide and seek. And my mom just remembers, you know, crawling through the darkness over the mountains, like, you know, the Von Trapp family and Sound of Music. And Damon looked at David, and I was like, okay, I think I have a shot. Like, as soon as <laughs> so, so I was like, okay. So that's how I got the job. Um, I've been in the industry for a long time. I'm very involved at the Writers Guild. I'm um, the vice chair of the Black Committee and the former uh, chair of the um, LGBT Committee. Um, now I'm the vice chair. <laughs> Shut up, bitch. Uh, <laughs> of the Education Committee. But I get to work hand-to-hand with Jeff Melvoy, so fuck all y'all. Um, <laughs> Uh, I've been, I've done a lot of, a lot of, a lot of things, but I finally just got into writing on, I call it real shit. Um, <laughs> cause I, I do a lot of independent things. I produce tons and tons of projects and, um, pilots and stuff. And, um, so I have a podcast too, which I've had Alex and the guys on called Screenwriters Rant Room. Check it out, y'all. Um, and I had a friend, my friend on named Miles, who's one of the uh, creators of Deadly Class. <clears throat> and we were sitting talking after the podcast. And I'm one of these people I'm always telling all the young people who listen to me all the time, like, you have an opportunity, you need to fucking take it. I have a potty, vo- potty mouth, you know that, right? So just bleep me. Um, <laughs> right, you know? So, so we were sitting talking, and he, they just got their show. They just got picked up. And I said, well, you know, I would be awesome in a room, by the way. <laughs> and he said, yeah. And he said, you'd you do, you be a staff writer? And I was like, hell yeah, I'd do a staff writer. People always assume because I produce so many things that I wouldn't do it. And I'm like, yeah, do I do it? So I proceeded to tell him about why I'd be great. So I did all the shit you did. So I started telling him, well, deadly class. I mean, duh, that took place. You know, back in the 80s in San Francisco, I'm, I'm from San Francisco. You know, it was like I grew up in a whole mob punk rock scene. It's like, duh. You know, so I started giving him game. And he was just listening and he was like, hmm, hmm. I saw his wheels turning. Ten minutes later after you left, he called me and says, so I want you to send your stuff here. So I sent my stuff in, had my agent send it over there. And a week later I had a meeting and we spent the entire time talking about how I used to get in fights with Nazi skinheads, you know. And, you know, hanging out, going to see the specials and madness. And, you know, so that's how I got on. This will really assist everyone. In get- um, I got my first job because I hit someone with my car. <laughs> Not kidding. I was two months out of college. Um, I had no intention of writing for television. Uh, I was going to be a food critic. I was moving to New York and I had lunch scheduled with a friend of mine on the Fox lot. He was an assistant on the X-Files, again, dating myself, and uh, drove onto the lot, and it's really precious to get a parking spot. Like, it's a big deal, but he wangled one for me. So I'm pulling into the spot, and there's this guy standing in the spot talking to someone, and I looked at him and politely was like, could you move out of the way? And he kind of went, I'm not going to move. So I hit him. I mean, not hard. <laughs> but I nudged him while I was late. Um, it turns out it, it's like such a, it's a comedy. It's a cute meet. It was my friend's boss. His name is Howard Gordon. <laughs> um... <laughs> He's, he created a couple of shows, like he ran 24 in the X-Files. Um, and he thought I was amusing. And after lunch, asked my friend, Mike, what I did. And I, he said I was a writer. And he asked me if I had anything. And I happened to have a script in the trunk of my car. Because I didn't want to be a writer, but I'd written one in college. Um, so clearly that is what I wanted. He read it. He offered me a job on the X-Files. 
I said, no, I'm going to be a food critic. I'm moving to New York. And Howard's comment was, thank God, because it's a very unhappy place to work. But I sent your stuff to my friends at Party of Five. And they hate everyone's writing, only they hate their own writing worse. So it will never happen. I got very lucky. Um, and they hired me on Party of Five, and I decided to stay. And since then, the creators of that show, I've worked with again on a show called Lone Star on Fox, and then Howard called me, and I worked on Tyrant on FX with him. So it's been um, a gift that keeps on giving. So have gas in your car. Um, I, I started on the first season of Riverdale, uh, and it was my first job, and the way that I got that job was I had written a screenplay that I thought no one would like, because it was just a little bit too uh, specific to my own situation. It was called Ship It, and it was about a teenage girl who loved gay fan fiction more than anything else. <laughs> and I was like, you know what? I'm just going to write this one script that's going to be my gay fanfic script, and then I'll never talk about gay fan fiction again. <laughs> I'm just going to get it out of my system. And then an a, a assistant read that script and loved it and got it to her boss, who was an agent, who loved it. Uh, who gave it to the people at Riverdale who loved it and wanted to meet with me, and and uh, and then I went on, I went on exactly one staffing meeting and it was for Riverdale and I got it. Uh, and then shortly after that, um, my agent called and said, "Hey, there's uh, some folks here at, at a book publishing company who um, who want to meet with you because they uh, really loved your screenplay, Ship It, and they think it would be a great novel. Do you want to do that? And I was like, I, I want to be a TV writer. And they're like, yeah, we got you that TV job, but now do you also want <laughs> to write a book? And I was like, sure, yeah, of course. Uh, and so I, I revised Ship It, and I made it into a young adult novel, which just got published like two months ago. <laughs> um, and this screenplay that I never wanted to really talk about or like make part of like my identity has been something I've literally had to keep talking about for like years and years. And I just went on a publicity tour for my book and I'm like on radio calls, like talking to like newspapers and NPR about like gay fan fiction. And so like the moral of that story, I guess, is to write something super personal that you never want to um, to be like your flag in the sand and then be prepared to talk about it for five years. I actually hit someone with my car, too. What? I, I hit Greg Berlanti with my car. <laughs> that was just like the most amazing story I've ever heard, so I had to say that. Um, I went to grad school. I graduated with $340,000 in debt, which I do not recommend, but that's what five years at Columbia does to you. Uh, I got out of school, was living at home, wrote a script, was lucky enough to get a manager and agent, went out on one staffing season, didn't get staffed, went out on another staffing, was at the end of staffing where like everyone else had been hired and I had totally given up and I went on this meeting and I just gave zero fucks because I didn't think I could get a job and was going to be living with my parents forever. And that was the job I got on a very little known show called The Tomorrow People with a wonderful showrunner, Phil Clemmer, who I am now working with on DC's Legends of Tomorrow. Um, I did not hit anyone with my car. Uh, but in dating myself, I'll say I was reading How to Be a TV Writer in Borders and taking notes uh, when that 
chain still existed. Um, I started out with a writing partner who I'm still super close to and who I adore. Her name is Monica Breen. And our first spec we wrote, we were in LA. We had gone to graduate school together in San Diego and we were putting off writing a dissertation and knew some people who were wanted to be TV writers and tried to, you know, copy what they were doing. And, and so we wrote a Buffy spec and, uh, which is so funny because now she is the showrunner of the reboot of Buffy. So I'm super proud of her. Um, but our first job, we, so we, we had, we did query letters. I don't know, like, if that, like, that's what they said in the book. And I, I don't recommend, I mean, I don't know if people do it, but even then it seemed like a long shot. And, uh, and we, filled out all the self-addressed, you know, envelopes saying, like, do you want us to send your material? And we had an out-of-date agent directory we were calling, you know, and every 10th one was out of business. Or, But we, we got 99 no's and, and one yes, and that guy became our manager, and he hooked us up with the director of a, the Brady Bunch, the final days. Wait, it was the Brady Bunch colon, the final days. <laughs> colon like all I know is that it had two colons in the title which like really disturbed me but it was a, a sort of a, a reality movie like they were doing these mini movies based on behind the scenes of the tv show and ours was uh the Brady Bunch and we wrote you know we studied all about their lives the actors and we wrote the script and we turned it in and the director was like I love it it's so Altman-esque and then the the producer was like uh can you just put all these events in one week of the show and you're like that's not how it happened you know but it was like we just like the idea that it took place in one week um so we did that and that was kind of our calling card I mean really we didn't have any you know we just got an agent just in time for staffing I mean our manager was just beginning because we got him in June and he said, you guys are amazing and I, you're going to get staffed like, you know, next week. And then he called next week and he was like, so staffing season is over. <laughs> and so, <laughs> so, but you know, that's good because weirdly we had written uh, some half hour and he was like, I don't think you're comedy writers. I think you're drama writers. And that's when we did a Buffy over the summer. And anyway, uh, it really was just pounding the pavement and kind of cold calling people and, and we got lucky. And we started on Charmed, and that's where I met Chris Levinson on my first job. And I've been lucky enough to work with Grania and Monica. And um, so, yeah, it just w took off from there. Awesome. So on that note, let's talk a little bit about staffing. And this question is mostly for the higher levels. How do you go about hiring your staff? What specifically are you looking for in every level, whether it's the higher levels, the mid-levels, or even staff writers? I've done some hiring of people, and I'll say, like, you know, definitely what's on the page is crucial. You know, that spec has to be special, whether you're getting it out of the trunk of your car or it's popping out of a pile. of. I mean, I was so glad I never saw showrunners offices. I went into one for an interview and they had, you know, a hundred scripts stacked and it's so intimidating. But really, you know, it is about uh, having a great script. So I would say that's the most important thing. And then I would say meeting with people and just seeing who you I think stories people tell, personal stories, are really moving because, like, getting a sense of what somebody's bringing in terms of their life experience is huge. And then also just seeing, like, do you have fun? Like, can you have fun with this person? And can you think together, you know? And is it stimulating to be having a, a thoughtful conversation with somebody? 
And after that, it's just, I always wish I could hire more people than I can. So that's the hardest part. When I was trying to staff the room for Queen Sugar, it was a season two show and I was taking over and there were two writers that were carrying over for, from the first season who I'd never worked with before. Um, one was Jason Wilborn, who's amazing. And the other one was Anthony Sparks, who, yes, Anthony's awesome, who I was actually friends with right out of college and we worked at a theater together, but I'd never worked with professionally. And, uh, I just knew I, I had an idea of what I wanted based on our, my conversations with Ava. This was her show. I wanted um, a lot of women and a lot of people of color and b- because of the sub- subject matter. And I kind of felt like I, there was a question that I would ask people when I met with them. And I would basically say, like, who, like, what's your room personality? Are you, and they would be like, what do you mean? And I would say, are you a muller? And to me, a muller is someone who sits for like 20 minutes and hears all the pitches and the computer's working. And then like 30 minutes later, they spit out a pitch. So I know not to look to you to, be the second personality that I look for, which is a pitch machine. You need a pitch machine. They're the person who constantly pitches. They don't get upset if you call their pitch stupid. They're like, okay, well then what about this? And they help drive the room forward. Um, and then I would say, are you the, there's also like the devil's advocate or the point counterpoint person, which I think is hugely helpful as long as that's not your go-to move is to like blow up story. Um, but they're the person that you can be charging hard down a path with a story and they'll just be like, hmm, what if, or they'll say like, I don't think that works. And you're like, wait a minute, we've been working on this for two hours and they'll, but they will also pitch an alternate. Um, and then there are people who are just not that, you know, vocal in the room, but they might kill it on the page and that's okay. You can't have a whole room full of those people or else you're not going to have story to break. But, um, if you know that about them, that's okay. And then I would just say for the staff writer, that's the script that I don't, I'm, I'm not super, like, if I don't love the script, but I love the person, loving the person will usually win out over loving the script. As long as the script is well written, it might not be my cup of tea, but as long as it's someone that I, I kind of want to help groom and, and help them, you know, have this huge opportunity to be on a staff. I think hiring the staff writer is always the most fun. Um, I think whenever I'm staffing up a room, I look at it as if it's a dinner party. Um, I never want to hire myself. <laughs> so I'm looking at, um, frequently, you're looking for your number two first. So if you know that personality, then you're kind of, you figure out how many bodies you're able to uh, afford. And then you look for different voices. I don't want everyone to agree because then you're all going to be writing the same thing. Um, when I'm meeting with folks, it's hard because it's it's like speed dating. You're meeting a lot of different people. A lot of them know the right thing to say. Um, and you don't know what they're going to be like um, after the honeymoon phase. Writers' rooms are always wonderful the first month. They're dreamy, and you're always saying these people are going to be my best friends. We're going to like they're going to be the godparents to my children, and I'm like, give it a month. But and then you will find your one that you're friends with forever. Um, but it's it's something that I look at finding different personalities. And one of those things is I ask people what they watch. What do you love? And then also I want to know what they love about this project, and that's usually very telling. Um, what they find in the piece, either if they've gotten to screen it um, or if they've read it, what turned them on. Uh, so this is open to everyone. What can staff writers and lower level writers do to increase their chances of getting work on a show? I will say when I was like a staff writer and story editor, I went to like every single panel that was available at the Writers Guild, the Writers Guild Foundation, everything around town. I would just go and try to like 
meet people. And I remember when I was on Lost as a staff writer, I went to, there was a huge um, day of events at CBS. And uh, I, after one of the panel panels, I went and introduced myself to all the panelists. And Gen Maynard, who I think was then like head of drama, was like, you're you're already staffed and you're here today? And I was like, yeah. And he was like, I'm going to meet with you. And so he was just impressed that I had a job, but I was still actively like trying to make new connections. Um, so I would say go to panels like tonight and meet people, get advice, but also network with the people in the audience because those are the people that I was standing in line with waiting to get on the CBS lot that I struck up conversations with. And then we all shared information and we became friends. Network. I'm always amazed at how many people get into the Writers Guild and don't show up at all. You know, everybody dreams to finally get in there and they never even come. <clears throat> just it just blows me away. Um, so people always ask me like, "Wow, you're on all these different committees and you know in these chair positions, and I've been doing it for years." And like, how did you like? Why do you do that? And I'm like, I figured it out pretty early. For me, was um, because I because I'm in those positions, I have access now. So whether it's the board or the the head of diversity or whatever, I'm in meetings that other people aren't. So I know rules that are going on there that people don't know. You know, so there's a lot of little things like that. Like I always tell young writers, if there's one committee you should go to, it should be the education committee. And, you know, that that doesn't take aside the black committee, the Asian committee or whatever. But if you're going to go to one, you should go to the one with Jeff Melbourne. Duh. He's giving you game all day long. And he goes off sometime about things that happen in the writer's room for like 20 minutes, you know. So I'm like, and I'm just sitting there like this going, uh-huh, write that down. You know, take that information in and get that game. So for me, I'm like, utilize the guild. You got in there, you should be going. So that's that's my If you're already staffed on a show, your foot is in the door. I would say be the most positive, can-do person in the world. As you might have guessed, you might be a little bit younger. Take a hold of the Twitter, like a lot of... People don't want to do that or say, like, I'm not familiar with that, but the showrunner certainly doesn't want to do it. So if you that, say you want to go to set, say you want to write in the board, just, like, be the person who's so excited to be there because for people who have been in this business for a while, they're tired, they got kids, they want to go home. Just having, like, positive energy and someone who's so excited about the show is the best thing you can do. Definitely afraid of Twitter. <laughs> so... Um, I think too, just knowing the show really well. If you're a staff, if you're a staff writer on a show, like make because I mean we've had, I mean oftentimes the writer's assistant too it becomes this person, but it's a way to shine, like a, a way to really remind people of like, well, you know that reminds me you did that contradicts something that happened in season one or. I think knowing the show and being sort of an encyclopedia of the show you're working on can really make you a go-to person. Um, and it's just a um, very, very helpful, I think. Yeah. I, I, it, particularly on our show, Riverdale has 75 years of comics history. Um, and so the first thing I did was read every Archie comic in existence. I didn't do that. That would be crazy. <laughs> No, I didn't do that. But I did familiarize myself enough with the comics so that if I had a pitch, one thing I could do is be like, well, you know, uh, in the comics, uh, what's common is this. And it like props up my pitch. So even if they don't like the pitch, they're like, well, at least she did her homework. Um, the other thing off Grania's point of like always volunteering for extra stuff is like one of our characters, Betty, writes for um, a school newspaper. And so every time... 
on the show, you see Betty holding up the school newspaper or he see Alice holding up the town newspaper. We have a lot of journalists on the show. Um, a lot of times, if you can see articles on the front page, uh, those articles have to be written. Uh, and uh, sometimes you can get away with just like sort of gibberish on them. And sometimes if it's if they're like pointing to an article, it's like a story point. Like we have to, the writers have to write that article. And so my first season on the show, one uh, one of the upper levels came to me and was like, "Who here knows things about newspapers?" And I was like, "Oh well, uh, <laughs> excuse me, but I was the editor of my high school newspaper." <laughs> And they were like, great, you're going to write all of the, the articles. And I was like, yes, sir, right away, sir. Uh, and so I wrote a lot of articles for the Blue and Gold that season. Um, and now there are new staff writers, and so hopefully one of them can take that on this season. Do you remember back in the... And was it Felicity? What show was it that someone sent the showrunner a cake to the showrunner who was like on hiatus in Hawaii? And it was like, hire... Wasn't that Riley Weston? I that character. Oh, that was that the one who the was a, a staff writer who got the job. So send a cake. Um, uh, but it actually turned out you can look this up in your history books, and it was fascinating because she pitched herself as the young staff writer who was going to know everything because she was young and busting at the seam. And it turns out she was like thirty six. The guy she claimed was her. Her brother was actually her husband. It's fascinating, but she got the job. Um, I was just going to say that something that impressed me mightily, because when you're in it and the train is moving and you have no time to think, um, frequently in, in rooms on a drama, somebody's the point person on the episode. It's going to be their episode. The writers who move it forward in the evening hours, uh, I had a staff writer who came to me and very sheepishly said, I have a DMV appointment tomorrow. Do you want me to move it? I'm like, hell no the DMV. You do not change appointments. I understand that's more important than the show. But when she came in, she had three stories to pitch and it wasn't her episode. She wrote them up while she was waiting in line. That impressed me phenomenally. And that's somebody I would hire again in a heartbeat. So moving on to the, the writing process in that room, how do you approach blue skying in your writer's room? And specifically, what are some lessons you've taken uh, from maybe past shows about way of breaking a season on a macro level? You know, when our showrunner is in the room, is is uh, our blue skying, my tip for blue skying is to like see see what he's interested in and like throw stuff in that direction um because uh there's been a lot of times where i'm like what would Britta lundine like to see in this episode and like that those those times don't usually go as well as when i'm like what would my showrunner like to see in this episode uh and that took me a little while to figure out of like oh it's not about what it's not my personal sandbox to play in it's like trying to try it's like when you're blue skying it's like anything is possible so you're just trying to direct it a little bit more towards what's actually going to make it to the episode I took a really valuable skill from Nashville where I worked under the showrunner Dee Johnson who's amazing and she's so great with character and she would always ask what is the emotional story that we're telling you could be halfway through a pitch and pitching your heart out and like and then Raina does this and Juliet and did it and she'll be like what is the emotional story that we're telling you're pitching me plot and events and I want to know what is the journey that I'm going on with the characters and working under her for three years has made me such a better storyteller and I took that with me to Queen Sugar and it's how like at the beginning of each season you have to break the long arcs for the entire season and pitch it to the studio and the network and it was that training of 
anytime we got stuck, I'd be like, oh, yeah, what's the emotional story that we're telling? Not where are they going and what are they doing? And, like, it's what are they feeling and, you know, what's the complication to the, what they want and, and what is this journey that I'm going on with that character? And so I owe her a debt of gratitude for that. She came out of the ER camp, and it's just her story is so infused with these really um, moving emotional uh, stories. I would just, I agree that the showrunner is kind of driving the room in, in that, especially blue skying is so much fun, but I think that different showrunners want different things from it. I mean, I think there's a whole camp that's m more like, wouldn't it be cool? Like, wouldn't it be cool? That's so cool if this happened. And, and I mean, yes. I mean, like a lot of times you're like, yeah, that'd be cool. I mean, I, I agree with Monica. Like, I, I think that the real art is to then be able to reach for those high concept things and then ground it in an emotional journey that's also, uh, compelling. Um, and I think the, the fun when you're talking macro about a whole season, I mean, that's when you're having those fun discussions about theme and, and, you know, journeys people can go on and, I always like them because I know I'm not working at the end of that day. Like, you know, like it's sort of a, you know what I mean? Like the writing is not, yeah, it's the first, it's the beginning. Um, so it's really fun. And I would just say, don't be afraid to get excited. I mean, because I also think some of what's happening in the room when you're blue skying is just energy and like, you know, seeing what stories generate, what kind of energy in the, in the room. And, and I think it can be helpful to, you know, not be afraid to be like enthusiastic as you're pitching step. I was just going to say, I find it interesting um, whenever we're blue scan in our room and we do it every day for some reason, you know, somebody just like, let's blue sky this. And we have, you know, IP because we have the comic book. But a lot of the, sh the episodes we're doing, you know, go off of it. So we have to blue sky and figure out another way to get around it. <clears throat> and one of the things that I've always done my entire 20 years I've been writing is I always tell a story from my childhood. I don't know if it's just somebody, something that I learned. And I know, um, like Lena Waithe, we talk about this all the time about how writers, like in her room, she doesn't want to hear you just say like, oh, well, what if the character did this? She wants you to tell a story, like a personal story, like you were saying, from your childhood or from your personal, my brother did this or whatever, instead of, because a lot of people just go, oh, what if the character did this? Instead of, oh my God, when I was a kid, my mom used to do such and such. What if the character did, you know? You find those things, and I find every time I do it, it's like on the board, on the board, you know? So that would be my thing. I'm coming at this from a technical angle. Also, having written a lot of mysteries, and um, I kill people a lot <laughs> in what I write. And so it is more plot-driven. I tend to make it character plot-driven. But you said something I think is worth noting. By the time a room starts up, the showrunner has already had to frequently now write a Bible, pitch out massive arcs for the first season numerous times. Um, so there are building blocks. And I would say when you come into a room, be helpful towards those building blocks. You can be uh, creative, suggestive, excited about it, but know that um, much work has gone into getting to that point and getting you in that room and the show greenlit. So I think the most help I get in a room is when someone then helps buttress what is already there. So how do your responsibilities change as you move up the hierarchy in the writer's room in terms of what's expected of you and what you have to do differently? I mean, I think it depends on the show. Uh, I'm fortunate enough to be on a show where there's not a lot of hierarchy, but it basically means when the showrunner steps out of the room, you're in charge, which can be a little intimidating at first. 
Um, and this is more about, we were talking about blue skying and I was thinking, it's funny as a writer, you think all the time about writing, but in the room, you really think a lot about listening and how to be the best listener possible. And, um, I think as you move up in the room, you're also just learning how to listen to the people below you and take any idea and see the golden nugget in it because I don't ever want to hear an idea and just be like, no, that's crap. You want to just like listen to like what's behind it and make someone feel included and confident and, you know, comfortable so that you can bring the best out of the people below you. I mean, I think also as you move up, you're maybe going to be taking on more producing. You're going to be uh, maybe weighing in more on other aspects of the show that are uh, and maybe responsible for guiding episodes. If more and more people get paired up in writers' rooms with other, you know, teamed up with people, and it's a senior writer to a more junior writer, and that senior writer is being held maybe slightly more responsible for what's on the page, and that's always tricky because you want you don't want to be you're not the final arbiter, but so you want both voices to be coming through on the page. And at the same time, you know, you're going to answer for it as you move up. So that's a real art. Um, but I also think as you move up, you get more compassion toward how hard it is to do the upper level jobs. Because I mean, I remember when I started out just being like, oh, where are they? I mean, my God, I mean, spinning our wheels. We used to say, waiting on da, waiting, like we, I think Angela's ashes had just come out and like he always went drinking and spent the paycheck and, you know, the kids were just like waiting on da and we used to feel like, oh, that's what we're doing, you know, where is he? And, uh, and then you, then you take on more responsibilities and you're like, oh shit, that job is super, super hard. And, uh, so I would just say, you know, when I look back, and I did make this chart once, sort of a ratio of like how happy I was in every year versus like how hellish did it get. And some of those first years were amazingly great because like you are just responsible for contributing in the room and for writing well on the page. But, you know, then you get to go home and other people are, you know, taking more work home with them. So I would just say it starts to envelop more of your life, too, as you as you move up. Like, you just start living the show, and I think for better and worse. As we're moving towards more and more uh, serialized stories, how would you balance telling a serialized narrative compared to telling a compelling hour of television? I mean, I'm, I'm working on a super serialized show, as Alex knows. Altered Carbon is the first time, really, I mean... It's it's from the book, but it's also veering into its own territory, and every episode builds on another episode. And I think what's helpful about it is that there's only eight this season, you know. But even so, I mean, it just takes a massive amount of tracking, I think, um, to. But you still have to make every episode feel like its own episode, and I think I don't know. Some of that is maybe in the concept behind each episode, or. I don't know how you felt on Queen Sugar, like just sort of that idea of each episode standing out in some way, but at the same time, you know, building cumulative, cumulatively to a climax. Um, I don't know, just it's a, it's a, it's a massive house of cards, I would say. It's because I, I look at something like a Law and Order where you're telling a, a beginning, middle, and end, and you have to tell a full, it's a full novel each week, which is exhausting. Um, and there is no writer's room on that show, actually. So we spent, um, you would come into work, ignore each other, shut your door, <laughs> come up with it, break it, write it, fly to New York, produce it, and then do it again. Um, 
and smile. Uh, but I think that something about shifting more into the serialized realm, it's, it's similar to act structure in a way, just spread out, where you want to have something each week. At least I think of the shows that I love to watch. And it's, oh, that's the one where... And I do remember something compelling that happened in that episode, and I also remember a door that they left open that made me want to come back for the next week. So how can you tell when a scene is working on the page? You know, in comedy, maybe you get a laugh, but how, how do you know when drama works? Yeah, I was going to just say that. I mean, you can... I was telling somebody recently about... I have this script right now, this, this feature script that's um, 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 in production right now, and... I was telling him, God, I haven't even read the end in forever because every time I get there, the person dies at the end and I, I can't even read it because I get there and everybody who's read it, all the from production, they all like, oh my God, we're crying at the end. And that's what you're trying to get to. So I exposed myself on the page when I wrote that. So for me, if you can do that, that's when you have nailed it. And... I was talking to somebody uh, just the other day that you can't, you can't not give in your entire self. Like all, all of you showrunners and executives, you guys are all looking for the lower levels to give ourselves. You want us to tell us real stories. You want us to, you know, talk about, you know, if we were molested and it's about something, you need to be open to tell the story, you know. And so <clears throat> if you can't, be that person, you, you almost are no good even on the page. So I don't know if I'm giving any game there, but for me, it's about being real with it and, and not worrying about who's going to read it or what they're going to say. You have to just give it, and it'll, it'll show on the page, in my opinion, if you, if you put the, the craft together with the, the real feelings. You know what's funny to me is, is actually just I'm always surprised that I'll be sitting at home in, in my sweats with my hair on top of my head, you know, and thinking like, oh, this scene this is the one. And then you get on set and it's a team effort and you have an actor who might not be feeling it. You might, and the scene that you thought wasn't important, it, I did a, a show where there was just, we needed something little and I ended up putting in something personal, but it was a lullaby my mom used to sing to me and it ended up ju just really working. And it was something I just needed to be there, and I never anticipated it to be that way. And it ended up, when the series ended, it was the last scene in the final episode. They did a recall of the lullaby. And so it's, what I love about what we do is I never know when it's working. I do my best, I show up, I, I put on my game face, but I, I'm always surprised because there are so many people who make my words actually happen, and they're bringing their reality and their truth to it, so. Um, I, I want to talk a little bit about like being personal because like you were talking about telling personal stories in the room and it's just so funny because every room is so different that I think in our room if someone was like well one time when I was a kid everyone would be like oh god <laughs> really just give us the pitch it's like it's just you know it's just a different vibe in the room every room's different and and yet and so like I don't do that in the room but when I'm writing the scenes like I am putting that personal stuff in there they don't know it's personal and they don't know that comes from my own direct experience but hopefully it resonates with them because it's real uh, and so when I, I deliver my scenes they read it and they're like oh this really pops and I'm like it better pop it popped in real life <laughs> but they don't need to know that they can just think I came up with it 
Well, on that, Britta, maybe you can talk to this idea of how do you maintain a balance between some content that may be very heightened and poppy, but still, still maintaining some kind of a strength to story and character. Yeah, that doesn't sound like our yeah. show. <laughs> all right, sorry. Yeah, no, we we run into this all the time on Riverdale. Is like, it's just funny. It's like, w w like crazy stuff will happen. Like in season two, we had a serial killer running around this small town and um, killing people. And our teens were solving the the identity of like who's the serial killer. And so there'll be times where we'll like we'll be breaking like. Crazy, fast-paced, thrillery kind of stories, and then our showrunner will be like, "Wait, wait, 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 okay, just think back. You're 16. There's a serial killer in your town. <laughs> Two of your classmates have been murdered. What do you do?" And we're all like, "Yeah, what do you do? Yeah." And you like try. It's absurd, but you try to ground it in some sort of emotional reality. It's like, well, yeah, I would probably be really torn up about my classmate who was murdered, and you know, I'd probably be really scared. Um, but it's important to unmask him, and so <laughs> I think I would go ahead despite the risks. And and it's all just about like finding the uh, emotional core at the center of what is like kind of slightly heightened stuff Slight, just a little, <laughs> a little bit and for everyone else how do you go about maintaining a certain tone on the shows that you're writing for i think for me on um uh, i'll give two examples on nashville it was very interesting because there were so many characters on that show i felt like there were like 11 series regulars and juliet was super over the top and and at times really broad but you could always anchor her because she had this real uh, just like this messed up dysfunctional past like her mother was a drug addict and she was a sex addict and so you could always like she'd go super over the top and say like this crazy thing and then two scenes later she'd be crying in the closet um because you know her truth was revealed and then that would anchor it and I feel like that show did a really good job. Dee was really good at knowing when we had to give the candy and the eyelashes because it was on ABC and when we were going for the jugular in terms of trying to make you cry and usually would make you cry with like Juliet and her postpartum or um, Will when he came out of the closet and he was a country singer and he lost his entire career, you know, and then Raina would be launching a record album. So there was highs and lows and, and it was um, kind of like a tightrope walk trying to balance it all. But it was a really fun show to write. And then I would say on Queen Sugar, again, that was a show that I came in on season two. And that had a totally different tone. I mean, Ava really wanted it to be thoughtful and introspective. And for me, you know, starting sort of in action early on, I was like, yeah, but can it have some narrative drive and momentum? <laughs> you know, it's like, I still, you know, that thing in me and, and Anthony Sparks would always be like, God, if we just blow something up, like, it would really help right now. And so just, you know, trying to really stay true to what the show was and just um, dig deep into character, whereas I think where we could get that narrative momentum and still stay true to the tone that Ava and Melissa had set season one. I just had something on tone. So the first seasons of Legends of Tomorrow, we thought we were a drama. And <laughs> by this season, we know we're a comedy. We actually tried to get the Emmys to change us to a comedy, but for some reason, they didn't think a giant blue fluffy uh bebo was funny i don't know but i think sometimes you also have to you know find the tone together as a group and uh yeah 
That's all I have to say about that. You know what? Actually, what I want to say is if you watched the first season of Legends of Tomorrow and didn't like it, give the fourth season a shot. <laughs> I mean, I think that's very show specific. You know, what is believable? Like, because in some shows, characters are in extreme situations and they're cracking jokes and that's part of the show and it's self-reflexive and it's all part of the charm. And then other shows, your characters are taking it super seriously and they're living in it and they can barely talk. It's so <laughs> stressful. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think some of it is just staying, but I do think staying true emotionally underneath it all is probably what's going to tether that balloon of whatever extremity, you know, you're exploring. I think having a touchstone, um, little ditty. I, uh, first pilot I ever sold was 14 years ago. And, um, <laughs> I, uh, I, it was, I was terrified. I turned red when I went in to pitch it and I sold it. Um, I sold it to NBC and I wrote it for them and Dick Wolf was my producer and they didn't make it. And then a few years later, um, meaning last year, um, uh, one of the producers who hadn't gotten it the last time around brought it into development again. And I sold it that many years later um, to a different network. I sold it to Bravo. Very different tone um, than NBC had been. And it was a crime-based show, but it was character-driven. So I wrote the Bravo version. Well, Bravo just decided that actually USA won the battle. So now you, I just resold it. They gave, so USA is now doing it. So again, they called me and they said, we think you're going to be happy. We want you to go gritty. So I had literally just written like the soapy Bravo version. <laughs> and now I got to make it, which I'm, I am happier with, kind of a grittier more. It's been, I've actually sold it four times now, same show, <laughs> over the course of a couple of years. And what's interesting is each time I go back to it, and I love it, it's like visiting old friends, which is the best. But um, I go to my lead character, to what Allison was saying, and I see it through his eyes. And now all of a sudden, it's the story hasn't changed. There's a crime. The crime remains the same, but how does he view it? What is his backstory? Has that? And it literally has shifted. He's been my beacon um, through four networks and different tones. Well, to that idea of having a show evolve across um, networks and, and TV evolving, how do you think the trend of smaller episode order uh, has changed the way you break stories going from a 22 episode to a 13 to now an eight episode order? You know, I, I, on Riverdale in season one, we had 13 episodes and in seasons two and three, we have 22. Um, and so what we did uh, in season two is like, after like around episode 15 16 17 you're just like wow this is just like the serial killer still out there huh like <laughs> still still terrorizing people but he can't kill that many people because you kind of need your character still so he's just still out there like being scary and so you search for other ways to be entertaining and so um one of the things we did and I, you know this might work for queen sugar is we had a musical episode <laughs> That's just a free idea. That's yours. <laughs> it's challenging because uh, there's, a, you know, any episode of Riverdale has just a lot of stuff packed into it. It's just a very quick moving show. Um, uh, there's a, a lot of twists and turns. 
Uh, and so to do that for, for twice as long in the series and, uh, in the season and keep people interested is a big challenge. And we talk about it a lot of like, we need to, to throw something big in here because these people have been watching 16 hours of our show this season so far. So we got to make sure that they keep tuning in because there's 450 shows out there and we don't want to lose them to like one of the others that, that, that has like two serial killers or something. <laughs> I mean, I've worked on shows that are 22, 24 episodes and then shows that are now like eight. I can never, I mean, I mean, yes, you block out, I guess, rough 22 goalposts, but I think you have to kind of, you meander more, you know, you, you, but I think you're always breaking it down. You're like, okay, so in the first eight, let's talk about like the first, I guess the, the season becomes a little more like three acts. So like, you're like, okay, episodes one through nine and then we're in the middle and then what's our big middle tent poles and then we're in a, final run and how are we going to build up to the end but uh so I, I guess some of it is just structuring the momentum of the season and then some of it is just putting your head down and just like being like I'm just focusing on the present and like how do we make episode four like the best it can be and then how do we make episode five and just not trying to look too far ahead other than you know hoping you're not far behind but you know like just because it's such a long run and I will say network is like a great muscle builder in that respect i mean i just think the sheer stamina to do that season is good practice for anybody and it's also why i like to go back and forth between shows that do have heightened explosions or genre you know sci-fi and then sometimes take a break and do a straight up soap because then you have nothing but the characters and i think that's good practice too but i think it's just a marathon as opposed to a sprint i don't know it feels luxurious to be working on eight episodes after doing 22 yeah i mean i think it's really exciting big little lies is one of my favorite shows but that for 22 episodes i think would get (laughs) repetitive you know and i think it's also the difference between serial and episodic if you're on a 22 episode show you want to have an episodic engine that you can just go back to i mean every episode for us is like a different movie a different genre really fun but if we were trying to tell a straight serial story it would quickly run out of steam so how do you go about addressing notes whether from the showrunner or the network uh while still maintaining your kind of creative vision for what you're trying to do i think he's something very bad in my head which uh, but a friend of mine told me like sometimes you get notes that you don't agree with and she said i just go in my office and i have a paper bag and I scream into it like, I close the door when I don't agree with it and then I come out all composed and I'll be like okay I'm ready to sit down and talk about the notes yeah. um, so that was in my head but I, I feel like you know I try not to get I try to just put my thick skin on and be like okay we're all here because we want the show to be great um, and so I just try to understand it from the network or the studios or the production company's point of view. But, you know, there are a lot of times when you're on a notes call and it's on speaker and the whole writer's room is there and you'll put it on mute and be like, that's a stupid note. <laughs> okay. Yes. We'll take a look at that. Like you just, you have to vent, you have to, you have to sort of like get it out of your system. But um, I, I will say that, it, you know, on Queen Sugar, I was really fortunate uh, that our execs were really smart and Ava had kind of trained them to be like it's it's the writer's vision it's her vision and and so they really let us lead and they would always say oh well just you know it's not that their notes were suggestions but they were very respectful of the process and i think having an 800 pound gorilla who'd been nominated for oscars saying like we got this helped a lot and you know coming from network shows 
And actually, I had just come off another, like a, a, a short order VH1 show where like VH1 was super in, like involved and it was, we almost had to take pretty much all of their notes and I was really surprised. Um, and yet we got very creative and we were very, um, wise about when we chose to push back. But, uh, I feel like, you know, you just have to remember everyone's there because they want the show to be great, not take it personal. And then know when you have to draw the line in the sand. I remember when I was on prison break, I think it was season two, there was a note from the network and it came down from like the head of the network. And I think Peter Liguori was the head of the network at the time. And the showrunner was like, no. And then they pushed back and they were like, Peter Liguori wants you to do this. I think it was him. I'm not sure. And, and our showrunner literally drew a line in the sand and said, we're not doing that. Our character would not do that. And it was a face off. And literally that day he was like, we're all going to go out and have Mexican food and we're going to go bowl because we might not have jobs tomorrow. And I was like, oh my gosh. And, and, and literally like one of the other writers, my friend Karen was like, well, that's cool for him because he's on an overall, but like, we, like <laughs> if we don't have jobs, like we don't have jobs, but you know, it was a face off and he felt like it was important and the network backed down. I don't know. For me, the notes process is like a week long experience before I even get the notes because it really, first the notes call gets set. <gasps> then your husband has to hear you practice what you think the notes you're going to get are going to be for like two days than your kids. No, but it's like a process. Um, I, I think uh, something I, I stole from the comedy panel that you guys asked, what would I tell my younger self um, is, is one, um, try to hear the note behind the note. Frequently the note that they're giving you isn't what it's like the toilet seat argument. You're going to fight over who left the toilet seat open. That's not what you're really fighting about. The note is sometimes global as opposed to whatever the minute thing is that they're pointing out and trying to hear that sometimes takes you saying, let me think about that. The famous response, which is sometimes true. Um, and being able to step, step back and step away from it to have some distance. But, um, but also being, I think what's also helped me is, uh, being clear what my show is. And sometimes there are notes that you say no to. And sometimes there are notes that make it better. And if you actively know the story that you're trying to tell, it definitely helps knowing which ones to take. I was just going to say, I'm on, I'm on script right now on my show. And, um, so I haven't even gotten my notes yet. <laughs> I think I will like next week, but, um, I can say, cause I've sold projects. What I've done when I've gotten notes is, um, I, I always feel like there's just, you know, we say like there's an art to giving a note and there's an art to taking a note. So, and I think you kind of already delved into it. It's about listening to, like you said, what's behind it. But to me, it's even more about, does it move the story forward? Does it mess you up? Does it, you know, there's like all these different things in there. And, and if you have the final say, then why are you changing it at all? But if you don't, then you have to figure out a way to, sometimes, I'll take it a little step further. Sometimes I think it's just as simple as you just need to go back a couple pages because something just wasn't clear. So sometimes it's just about making it more clear and you end up both winning, you know. So they just there to help you is what I found. Uh, what do you think are the most important things that a showrunner or an EP can do to make a show run smooth? Uh, 
Oh, I mean, I think every showrunner wants their show to run smooth. I mean, so I guess I tried, I don't know, my husband works for a game company and they were all reading this book, Extreme Ownership, uh, which is a Navy SEAL take on leadership. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. All these kind of gamers are like into the Navy SEALs. But so I read it and I was like, okay, I mean, like, you know, there is a sense of being like you're handed, if, if you're handed a show or if it's your show, it's going to be in some state of smooth sometimes and some state of crisis a lot of times. And then it's sort of how do you cope with a crisis? And then I think you really see the character of the person, you know, running the show come out because some showrunners, you know, we always used to say like, don't kick the dog. You know what I mean? Like, it's like all kinds of stuff can rain down from above, but that doesn't mean you come in and you you know, take it out on people, you know, sort of, it's like, how do people deal with that kind of power? I mean, because a showrunner, I used to think it was a real pinnacle of something. And it is in one sense, because it's amazing as a writer to be given that kind of leadership over, you know, the content of the show, but it also is very much a middle management job. And I think that's what was surprising. You were like, people didn't just hand you the keys. And then it depends on who are your executives and do you get along with them and do they have faith in you or are they second guessing you all the time? And, and that can vary dramatically. So I guess you just, I don't, to me, it comes back to like the character of the showrunner a lot. Like, can they stand in the midst of chaos and not add to it. You know what I mean? Can they be really able to put out the fire or shield the people who don't need to be feeling it from feeling it and, you know, just cultivate sanity, um, which shouldn't be so hard, but at times really is. So I wish there was an easy answer for that. Um, but I just try not to take it out on anyone else. That's my... <laughs> <laughs> credo well we on our show we have an open door policy i don't know what you guys do on yours literally all of the offices everybody's door is wide open so you can go into anybody's office anytime even the showrunner. we have three showrunners on our show with two creators so they're one team and then make Court, you know all together so um the, all the doors are open all the time so we just always pop in hey what do you think about yada you know so to me that open door policy keeps it really neutral you don't feel like there's like secrets going on. You know, nobody ever closes the door. I would say um, yes to everything that Allison said. But I'll, I'll, one thing that helped me was I was fortunate enough, even the two writers that I didn't hire, like I trusted everyone immensely. And so I felt like even though not everyone could see when I was like, oh my gosh, this is terrible. And like, we've got to rebreak this episode. I felt that I could pretty much be my true self in front of everyone, which is huge. And I also felt like I, the people who I inherited and the people who I was lucky enough to hire, I knew what their skill sets were. So I knew what I could delegate because I was like not trying to go crazy or not see my family, even though we did have to break and write 10 scripts in 20 weeks, which was a mandate given to us from the start, which I was very, very challenging and a Herculean task. And we did it. We turned in the ninth and 10th script like the day before cameras rolled because uh, we had to. Um, but um, yeah, I would just say I was really fortunate. If you're fortunate to work with people that you trust and that you can delegate to, it helps immensely. And and on la on that season, you know, down to the story editor, I could hand her, you know, a script and be like, I need you to take a pass at this because she was that good. And that you don't always have that in, in lower level writers. So I think, and, and when you have, I would also, 
I, different people do things differently, but every notes call, I just have the whole staff on because it was like, I'm not going to come in and download to you. I don't have time to do all that. Like, let's just all be on the call, track forward and backwards the notes that they're giving, and then let's talk about it afterwards. And then I, I went to like some, a brunch that someone was having, a friend of mine, and, and other people were saying like how they don't get all the information. And so I think that was, that's just my leadership style. It was like, I need to tell y'all all the information because it affects all of us. Um, not everyone will get all the information at the same time. Sometimes it would just be like the upper levels because I was like, let's not panic, close the door and then we'll <laughs> tell everyone else in a minute. But we need to figure out a plan before ever we tell everyone else. But I felt like, you know, we were, I, I said this at the beginning of the season and I truly meant it. I said it, best case scenario, we will become a family. Worst case scenario, we'll be a great team. And I felt like we, we were a family, which was a, a gift and a blessing. <laughs> So how do you sustain an ongoing career as a writer, especially when it comes to changing things up, like switching genres or evolving yourself? Well, I'm doing it now, you know, being on the show, because I've been an independent, you know, filmmaker for years. I think we live in a time when you can be your own boss, and I think you should. Like, you should be writing your books, you should be, you should be creating your own web series, you should be doing your podcast, you should be doing anything that interests someone. And also... you. You shouldn't be waiting for Hollywood anymore. It's just how I feel about it. Yes, you can never get the amount of money to make an entire TV show. But you can put together the right team to make a kick-ass web series and be, you know, and have Insecure two or three years later. <laughs> you know what I mean? So you can, there's things you can do to be in charge of your own domain. And that's, that's something I'm all, I'm all about. <clears throat> I talk to a lot of my big um, writer-director friends and they come from the old school. And I found, and I'm going to get in trouble for saying this, but y'all know me, I keep it real. So <laughs> I found that sometimes when you're a certain age, they have an old way of doing things. Now, I'm almost 50, believe it or not. Brother, just pretty. Um, <laughs> shut up, girl. And Shut up, girl. <laughs> and and um, a lot of people will literally, um, they believe that you should put together a pitch package, get it all ready, go and pitch it to a network. I'm from the generation where you put together your team, you make a kick-ass sizzle, and then you try to sell it. And then you bring on your team, and then, you you know, that's that's the future. And to me, that's where you need to be thinking, not how can I just get on staff. It's like when I'm not getting on staff, what else am I doing? So that's that's what you need to be thinking, at least in my opinion. I'm bringing it old school. That's the thing. No, like, no, it's, uh, I would say that the best advice that actually my, I think my husband gave to me, and he's out there, is just following curiosity. Because I started writing character drama, but I loved mysteries. So I went and wrote a spec law and order that they weren't supposed to read, and they read it, and they hired me. You know, it's one of those things where, because legally they weren't supposed to read it. But... Um, uh, they couldn't shoot it. It all revolved around a man being wounded from the inside from the use of a rather large dildo. So they weren't going to ever be able to use it. Um, but it was a great, it was a good twist. Um, but just, I kept reinventing myself. And that that was something that went from character drama to, to mystery to then when the world changed, being able to shift over to cable, which is an entirely different as you guys were pointing out, fewer episodes, different types of storytelling. Um, and I just wasn't fearful. It was just, this is what I want to be writing. And I would write my way into it. 
um, the joy of, um, unlike the man sitting next to me who is stunning for those who are listening to the podcast and came down, we can't all rely on our beauty. But the great thing about writers, I, right, it was writers, the best thing in the world, nobody gives a shit what we look like. Just keep, just keep writing. Yeah, I mean, right. I, I, we, we did specs, you know, but like, don't limit yourself to what you're writing. I guess now everybody wants to read original, but if, if you're interested, if you really are interested in moving between, you know, a procedural show or, or a cop show or a legal show and then, but you also want to write sci-fi, I think it's just a matter of getting your scripts up there so that your agents and your managers have that arsenal and can target this sample is great for this show this sample is great for this show because once you get in the door you're just a writer talking to a writer and I've never felt like when I'm sitting down with somebody talking about their show that I would love to be a part of that's so specific like I, I think that if you have a sample that can show that you're in that wheelhouse then it's very much about that personal connection you're making so I would just say write, write, write what you're interested in and, and don't don't like feel like you have to stick to a lane necessarily. So now this may be a thorny issue for some, but how do you deal with audience feedback on your show in a healthy way? We have a show that has a lot of teenage viewers. <laughs> and um and they're very vocal about what they like and don't like. Uh and uh and so every morning when I wake up, I sort of like yawn and I check my email and then I like just kind of like <laughs> hold my phone at arm's leg and like hesitantly tap on Twitter and like see what they've been saying overnight and tagging me in. Um, I, I think it, uh, my, I, you know, I wrote a, I wrote a screenplay that became a book that's entirely about, um, the fan creator struggle and like how fans can see a show one way and how creators can see it in another way and it's okay and like we don't all have to agree on the show just as long as you keep watching <laughs> um and so a lot of times i'll see like hot takes on twitter and stuff and they'll tag me in uh in their their theories or or their opinions and i'm like i don't see it that way uh but it, that's not really important and i don't i don't i think they're tagging me uh but i don't think they really want a response from me i think um they don't they don't want me out there being like shooting down their their theories they just want to express themselves and they want to watch the show and uh and get excited about it and talk about it uh and it's super exciting that they can tag a writer on the show um but like if i wade in and start like like getting into the nitty-gritty of like oh well the reason that doesn't work is because what we're planning in episode 15 is going to contradict all of that so you guys don't know anything you 13 year old <laughs> i don't think i would go well so mostly i just i just ignore it and um if it's something really positive i'll like click the little heart button that's how i get by <laughs> no, we have a lot of vocal fans on Twitter. Um, a lot of them are supporters of Ava Lance, which is the relationship between two of our female characters. And that definitely makes us, I think, think about that romance and how people have maybe, you know, killed off lesbian characters on other shows and why we would never want to do that. I mean, it's a responsibility. You feel like people see themselves, especially for CW shows where it's a lot of young viewers, they see themselves in these shows, they identify with the characters. And, you know, you want to write the show you want to write, but you also don't want to break hearts. So, you know, we do we do pay attention. Yeah, I don't want to hug this question, but I, I was just at um, Comic-Con. And uh, I, when I was there, I was at an event. I sort of tweeted that I was at an event. And then someone... It's like an hour later, tapped my shoulder and said, hey, there's two Riverdale fans outside. 
who can't get in? Do you want to go say hi to them? And I was like, sure. So I went out and uh, it was a viewer from Brazil and a viewer from Germany who knew each other from the internet because they watched the show and they loved it and they became friends online and they met at Comic-Con in San Diego. And uh, so we like chatted about it and it was just like, you know that your show gets watched worldwide. You know it, but you don't really realize it until you're talking to like two fans, one with a Brazilian accent and one with a German accent who are telling you about their favorite ship. It's <laughs> crazy. And so, I mean, to your point, I think it's, 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 you can't get paralyzed by thinking about that, but it is important to remember like the power that we have as TV writers. Like we reach a lot of people and that power needs to be used wisely and, and, and try not to be careless about it. You know, as you're like having fun and trying to make the best show possible, also be thoughtful about like what, what your words are going to do once they're out there in the world. Just one little thing. Um, the fans of Nashville were so excited about the show. Nashville was always a bubble show, meaning like we were on the brink of getting canceled because we were a co-production between Lionsgate and ABC Studios. So we were not fully ABC owned. So we would always get the pickup late. And it was our fans, season two, that on Twitter... Just like literally, I didn't know if I was going to have a job. I was running around like a crazy person, taking meetings all over the place, begging people to, you know, make me an offer in second position. If the show comes back, sorry, I can't take your job. But if it gets canceled, yes, I want to be on your staff. So it's so like nerve wracking. And I remember it came down to the wire and I was calling into the assistants like, what's what's happening? And they were like, Callie and D just pitched the season three arc and they're waiting and we don't know. And it it was the fans on Twitter that pushed us over the edge, literally, to the point where the head of the network responded. And I think we got the announcement. We, the writers, found out on Twitter, like, oh, my gosh, okay, great. I have a job in two weeks, like, because of the fans. And then season three, again, they, like, sent a, a cake to the, ne the studio network executives because they wanted – it was this – we call them Nashies and Sarah Nesti from Italy, like would lead, lead the charge. But literally because of them, I felt like we got, we were always on the bubble. Our ratings were kind of eh, not great, but we had critical acclaim because the music, but the fans would literally just like push us over the edge. So it was so, I'm so thankful um, because they were so passionate and expressed their passion on social media. What do you wish you knew when you were first starting out? I wish that even before I was paid to write, I was still a writer because I feel like I had and I don't know what everyone here, if they're just trying to break in, if they've already broken in. But if you're writing, you're a writer. You don't have to get paid for it. And there's a joy to just writing whatever you want. I mean, a lot of us were writing the show that our showrunner wants and it's amazing, but it is a privilege to also go to the library and just write whatever is in your head. So I just wish I had known from the beginning to have confidence in my voice and to think of my career in the long term. And every time I went to like a family Thanksgiving and somebody asked, what do you do? And I was like, I'm a writer, but feeling really ashamed because I couldn't tell them what I was writing on. Like, I wish I had just been more proud and owned it and known that my career was going to get there and I just had to have faith. So, well, I agree. I think that's so well said. It's funny. We, I was standing outside. I came in an intermission. I heard this question for the comedy panel and I was like, oh my God, what would I say? 
Now's your chance. <laughs> I'll be truthful. I immediately was like, I, I don't know. I would try not to like get so angry and like, you know, so uh, like things just seemed so unbelievably important. You know, you, you know, your showrunner would like rewrite a scene and you'd be like, I hate that line and it's going to be on TV and my name's going to be on it. And oh, God. And then like, yeah, then the fans are going to be like, that's the worst writer ever. And, you know, I would just say, uh, A, like grain, like a little bit sort of, yes, I would like to like lighten up a little because especially when you're starting out, <laughs> you feel like, you know, the show is everything. And then you realize, and it took me some time to realize like, A, it's okay if not every sandbox is for you, you know, like, and just that, I think that was, as opposed to like, oh, it's just going to be this trajectory of like, you, you know, now your foot's in the door and then you're promoted and you're going to get the next job. And, oh, God, I wish it was like that. But like, it, I really don't know anybody who doesn't get knocked around by the industry. And, and I think holding on to your voice and remembering why you started and not letting people take the specificity from you or be so worried guessing what people want that you start to lose your center. And I mean, it can happen. And But always finding your way back and I think remembering just the joy of of writing, which when you're when you do it so sustained for such amount of time, like you know, it can get it, it can feel arduous. And anyway, I, I would just like to just know it's going to be okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> because I mean, it's a freelancer job ultimately. Like you're going out and you're interviewing every couple of years, and you know, I have friends who are like you know lawyers or like they're a judge, and and that's it. Like that's their job, and they have it. And I'm like, oh my God, like, how was that to like, you know, like, to know you have a job in like 10 years, you know, and like, and so as opposed to like, you're always flying a little bit by the seat of your pants. So I think just kind of, you know, chilling out about the whole thing and, and, and when, when things don't go well, knowing like there's going to be another sandbox to play in. Totally going to remind you, you said that. Cause like we've, after like 15 years of being friends, I think we've met for coffee. I remember when you made like a graph once about like, this is how it works. Like we're all trying, it's like it never ends. Um, we drank a lot of coffee. I think the whole, like that it's, that it's a marathon and not a sprint. And to that end, like you, yeah, calm, calm. It's all the stuff I tell my kids, like just be kind to yourself. But to that end, I think somebody said this in the comedy panel and I'm gonna say it again too. In order to get the work done that you love, in order to get stuff on the air to reach these amazing amounts of people that matters to you and to say, like, you got to stick around. You got to stay in the game. As again, I keep quoting you, Antoine, my husband. He, he always says when I get cranky, he's like, but you're still on the bus. And he said, frequently the bus pulls over and people are asked to get off the bus. And you're still, you still have a seat on the bus. But to do that. I like that, him. That was game. He's right, good, right. Thank you. But the reality is to do that also, um, you got to do things. Somebody did say earlier, have a good therapist. Have have good friends. Um, there's something also about being open and honest with your friends, like being able to say, uh, I had a group of women who we finally said to each other, you know, I've been pitching for years, and somebody was asking, like, what do you wear on your pitches? I'm like, it's actually a really friggin' awesome question. I can't believe I just curved my language. I don't think I've ever not said fuck, but... Um, <laughs> I got very polite for a second. But having a community, I think I wish I'd known that too. I think I wish I'd been, um, to be totally honest, less threatened specifically by other women because I was on procedurals and on dramas. I was frequently the only woman in the room. 
um, I'm so thrilled that's changed. And having friends and other women in particular who I can go to and now say, how much do you get paid for that? What did you wear to that pitch? And people are actually talking openly and I think that actually gives us more power. That was nice. I like that. That was cute. I would tell myself to, in the previous uh, um, panel, you guys were talking about, somebody mentioned, um, 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 I'm going to blank on the word all of a sudden. I had it at the tip of my head, but then you kept yip-yapping. Um, <laughs> uh, oh, imposter syndrome. So I would tell myself, let that shit go. There is, there's, I'm somebody, I didn't tell you guys my backstory. I didn't. I didn't graduate from high school. Um, I didn't go to college. You know, so I'm like a self-made dude. You know, all my success. I have an office that lot. You know, I drive a cool car. All these things I did my fucking self. You know what I mean? So I would just tell myself to let that shit go. And so, but I'm going to give you this little game. The thing you guys control, can control. I can't even get my words out today. <clears throat> I've been talking all day. Forgive me. I have a podcast. It's weird. Um, Scream at your rant room. You know, check it out. Um, <laughs> shut up, y'all. Uh, <laughs> so uh, I w let me give you guys this little bit of game. Check this out. The one thing you guys control is your writing. Now is the time to experiment. Somebody was saying earlier about writing sci-fi and writing all kinds. Now is the time to practice doing them all to see which one moves you the most. You may be good at several of them, but one of them is going to really move you, right? And that's the one you lean into. But practice now on all those other ones to go, hmm, let me try this sci-fi idea I had. Let me try this comedy. Oh, I'm actually a better hybrid than I thought I was, you know? But if you don't do it, you don't know. Last thing, you guys are writing television. We're not doing spec scripts anymore. Write the spec scripts. You got to practice. You got to learn how to do that. There's no better way to learn how to do that than to practice with a spec script. So even if you just do it for yourself as, as an example or as a, as a test for yourself, um, do it. And the last thing, I know I'm talking a lot, work on your fucking speed. You guys have got to be fast in TV. All my friends doing movies like, oh, I want to write for TV. I'm like, can you write a script in a week? A week? I'm like, yeah, bitch, a week. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? So practice now. You got to set those deadlines and you got to be ready to do it now. You know, sometimes like I'm on a show now where something went wrong between one script and another and your outline came up now. So it's got to be done by tomorrow. Luckily, I practice how to do that. Right. So you got to be working on that shit now. So I would tell my younger self, don't let your job become your life. And I learned that the hard way. Like, I think you want to impress like you're yeah, I'm a staff writer and. Uh, I remember when I was on prison break and Karen Usher would, she would call it pumpkining. She would pumpkin out the door at five and she would, and she would come back the next day and be like, how late did you stay? And I was like, oh, I was working on this pitch. And she was like, don't you want to go home and have dinner with your husband? And I was like, yeah, I do, but I'm trying to. And so she was really the first one to sort of say like, kiddo, this ain't it. Like this ain't, this is, this is your job. This is your career. It's not your life. And I think Whenever I get, you know, the life-work balance gets tilted one way, I'm very unhappy. I'm angry. My whole family feels it. It's like, it's just not fun. And, you know, it's, it's a job. It's a great job. I love what I do. I think we all love what we do. It's so much fun. 
But the end of the day, it's not worth your health, your family, your relationships, any of that. And if you're on a crazy show, sometimes you might have to like exit stage left um, to keep your sanity, to keep your, you know, if your therapist is on speed dial, like that's probably a sign that like maybe this job isn't worth it. And it's easy to say that. Um and, and, and I'm not saying like you should just quit, but you know, get a therapist, call your posse of friends. There's plenty of times when I've called Allison and been like, girl, we need to talk. <laughs> Cause I'm going to cuss someone out. <laughs> yeah. You in danger, girl. Yeah. yeah. It's like, so I, I just feel like life work balance is really important. And you know, you don't want to look up at the end of your life and be like, oh, I missed it with my kids or I missed it with my family. It's, it's just it's work. Well, yeah. Um, my advice dovetails perfectly with that, which is like when I was just trying, when I was, you know, still trying to become a writer, I felt like a lot of my life was about, you know, writing. I would like wake up early to like work on my scripts. Uh, and then I would go to work all day at the job I needed to pay my rent. And then in the evenings, I'd be like networking and like having drinks. And then like maybe if I was lucky, like spending a night with my wife and like <laughs> uh, watching Netflix or something. And then I'd go to sleep and I'd wake up and do it all over again. And, you know, I used to have something called hobbies. And they just went out the window because, like, my hobby was screenwriting and my uh, career was screenwriting. And, like, all I could talk about was screenwriting. My wife was like, I am going to kill you if I have to hear about screenwriting one more time. And so, you know, it's, it's one of the things that I've tried to focus on is, like, doing things that I like. And one of those things is I, I, I grew up as a big reader. I always used to love to read books. And then there was a whole period in my life that the only books I read were, like, memoirs from screenwriters or like like oh, a weird esoteric uh, book that I thought would be good research for my next pilot or whatever and I was like I just stopped reading books that used to bring me so much joy so I tried to start I like got a library card because uh, they're free at the library and I just started reading a lot of books and then I fucking went and sold this book and now reading books is work <laughs> but that's my burden to bear that's not on you so my advice would be like, pick up a book and read one. Like they're actually really great. <laughs> Lastly, where can people find you online? My name is Britta Lundin, and I'm at Britta Ships It on Twitter. Uh, my book Ship It is in stores now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm on Twitter at Monica Macer, just my first name and last name. Uh, you guys can find me on Twitter at Hilliard Guess. You guys can follow my show, Screenwriters RR, and I'm on Instagram and all that bullshit. Watch, I know, son. Watch this. Hey, babe, what's my Twitter? <laughs> Are you out there? Hey, Levinson. That's where you can find me. I'm there a lot. <laughs> um, I think I'm at Allison Chapker. Um, and I'm going to start doing it. <laughs> no, seriously, I, that's one of my uh, resolutions is to, is to start tweeting. I hope you do because you're dropping gems tonight. So um, I'm at Godfrey Stories. All right, and you can find our podcast, Paper Team, at paperteam.co and on all of those things, iTunes and Android, etc. Uh, I'm on Twitter at underscore NJ Watson. And I'm at TV Calling. And uh, I hope you had a good night. Thank you all for coming. And please give a big round of applause to our incredible guests. <laughs> Thank you.
that's a wrap on the 100th episode of Paper Team. Once again, we would like to thank all our guests for joining us, as well as everyone who helped us put on this live event at the Greenway Court Theater in LA, and those who donated to support this episode. You can find the show notes for this special panel at paperteam.co slash 100. You can also leave us a review for the podcast at paperteam.co slash iTunes. As always, I'm on Twitter at TVCalling. Nick is at underscore NJ Watson. If you have any thoughts, feedback, ideas, or questions for future episodes, you can always send them to ask at paperteam.co. And next week for our 101st episode of the podcast, we will be doing a 101 look at TV staffing. Everything you've wanted to know about the musical chair dance of TV writing will be discussed in the next episode. See you next week.